Oh, hello. <laughs> I think we're live. Right, I'm just waiting for Jules to, to knock on the door. But um, I think we're there. Let me just say hello to everyone on Facebook. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Yes. Yes. Right. Now we just need Jules. And then we're away. Here it is. Here she is. Hooray. Right. Any minute now, Jules will be live to Facebook. It takes a while. Right. Here we go. Any second now. Hello, Jules. We're straight on live Facebook uh, to uh, Dogs Today Facebook page. Hello. And it, oh, is that which which little friend have you got there in the foreground? That's a little Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell. Oh, wow. She, she was the baby in the Royal Variety. Oh, gosh. Gosh, she's just grown up. It only seems like five minutes ago to me, but it must have been a while ago. Right. The, the way I tend to do these, Jules, I don't know if you've sat through any of my epic interviews. <laughs> is, oh, you have. So, you know, you're in for the long, yeah, the, the, the long, the long, yeah. I do tend to go on. So let's start at the very beginning. You were born, is it in Blackpool you were born? Yeah. yeah. And I, I remember talking to you about this many years ago, but I seem to think you didn't have a dog at home and you had to really work hard on your parents to get them to, you know, to finally give in. I actually, um, they brought me a Yorkshire Terrier. And I was very disappointed. Oh no! Because it was a horrible little thing, and it bit everybody, and nobody liked it. And it used to follow my dad about the whole day, and it picked him out as this person. So I wanted a dog of my own, and I wanted a loud one. So when I'd saved some Christmas money up, and I went with the bus to town, you could do that in those days, going to the pet shop. (laughs) Oh, sorry, fell. Uh, going to the pet shop and purchase a puppy and I took it uh, back on the bus home it was a mm. rainy day and I rolled it in mud and got it all wet on the way home in the park and took it in and pronounced that I found this dog so that was my first dog <laughs> I had to make a lot of promises to keep it of course but we did find out the kids in the pet shop and put two and three together because nobody got any Christmas clothes, about eight pounds Christmas and spent down on the dog. That was my first and best, obviously, the first dog was always the best dog. Oh. And it happened to be a border collie cross. Um, oh. So pretty bright? Yes, very bright, very bright, very, very clever dog. She was a dog I started actually doing bits of film work with. Uh, via the doctor, and um, she works in obedience to, 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 to the highest level. It's a little but it's my first dog, my first training experience. So she got quite far, but she was a fabulous dog, yeah. So, how old were you at this point when you, because you, you did, what was, what was your first so what was your first film work then? What did, what was that? Um, it was actually a horror story that came through uh, the dog club, the Tower Dog Training Club. Uh, that I, was, uh, um, I was three times a week at Tower Dog Training Club. I was fascinated with dogs and everything to do with training. 
And uh, yeah, that was that was my evening out to go and watch the, the top handlers working their dogs and you know dream about one day having a dog that's going to keep like their dogs and listen like their dogs. Um, and somebody was looking for a little dog in a film role and wanted kind of a street dog type scruffy thing and none of these beautiful dogs that were the dog club. And there's me, 12 years old, sat with this scruffy little mutt. She <laughs> said that bit. <laughs> Well, so that launched us into the music a bit, yeah. Wow. So, <laughs> so did, when you were growing up, did you think, um, I want to work with dogs, that's that's really all I want to do? Or did you have any other ambitions that you thought? No, I, primarily it was always dogs. I just didn't know really what direction. I wanted to explore all directions. Mm. Um, and uh, my parents were quite encouraging in that way. I started work at the RSPCA on a voluntary basis. Mm. I helped out at the vet on my free day and at weekends. Um, I wanted them to know a lot about the medical side and a lot about a lot about rescue and doing rescue. And there were so many hundreds of dogs, especially talking thirty years ago plus. There was many many dogs. Uh, one, once the kennel was full, we put to sleep. Many dogs were overlooked because they were badly behaved in the kennel situation, or in a, in a commercial kennel situation, they were stressed or, or you know barking and spinning around. Those kind of dogs don't get looked at. They walk, they get people walk past. Yeah. And they look at a sad reserve of the dogs that look sweet. Um, and once you get these people dogs out of the kennel environment and you get them on the lead and take them outside, you see totally different dogs. And I was convinced that with a bit of training, mm -hmm. that these dogs wouldn't get overlooked. So that was where I really started to off. And I've stayed there, ooh, about six, seven years before I actually moved more into the training line, more specifically into the training. Mm -hmm. So was this vol voluntary that you were doing? Uh, well, I actually worked there six years. I went up the ladder, started as a kennel maid, cleaning kennels. Mm -hmm. Um, and worked full time for the OSPCA in Blackpool also, um, mm -hmm. until yeah, um, I was assistant manager when I left. So uh, so I'd worked my way up the road. And then again, I had, a, had to make a decision, do I want to stay in this, uh, in this scenario? Do I want to become a manager or do I want to branch out and do something, you know, do something else? Mm -hmm. So uh, I felt I'd learned what I could do there. And the people I was working with, it was kind of all changing the branch and being updated. And I thought, yeah, I had to stay for all that renovation wise and changes wise. Or now is the moment to move whilst they're, whilst they're doing other things. Or if they pulled off the table, I wouldn't make this TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did. I stayed there for six years. And then I, via the RSPCA, I was contacted um, uh, by somebody in Belgium and offered me a year's work. While somebody was on the pregnancy leave, pregnancy leave, to come and work with uh, training dogs at the training centre in Belgium, and I thought, yeah, great, do it while you're young, got no time, and yeah. that's what brought me up here, and I made a lot more contact and a lot more experience. Also, going to shows, uh, but also training gun dogs, one of the most, yeah, difficult groups uh, to train, of course. So what sort of um, training were you employed to do back then? Was it, um, uh, it, it, it? Most of it, for the first almost 20 years, it's any dog that comes in 
for to a trainer or for advice is usually a problem dog with either issues about fear, uh, afraid, uh, scared dogs, um, or aggression. Mm-hmm. The dogs that are normal, that are stable, they don't normally come to a, to a training center, of course, or, or need need access. So um, you've got to remember in those days, those were the days of check chains, uh, brute force, you will do what I tell you to do. Um, and it was, yeah, we went really through that through that change. I was very lucky with the timing, bridge-wise, that the positive uh, was being recognised, um, that the, the, the dog and the dolphin book was being spread around and people were getting into clicking and, and seeing that there was another way to, to, to develop your dog mentally than actually, you know, forcing it to do something that it didn't necessarily do. And a lot of aggression and, and nervous uh, problems are brought out by uh, tackling it with aggression, of course, or frustration. A dog doesn't understand when the boss gets, when yeah. he's only gets frustrated uh, with it, and he can only fight or flee. So, so I was very lucky that I didn't, I wasn't very long in training before it all turned around and, and yes. almost fell into my lap. But this is great, you know, mm-hmm. we can work with dogs in a really positive way rather than a negative one. And how did you cope with moving to a foreign country? Because um, did you speak any of the languages? Um, how Not easy? At all. <laughs> Not at all. And a lot of people had a lot of fun with me in the beginning because you got me to say things that I had no idea what I was saying. Um, and until everybody, of course, collapsed in hysterics, then I'd realised I've said something that's not very nice. <laughs> um, the first year, of course, I was only a year there at first, and then I went back to my job in England. Um, but um, I, I did attempt uh, slightly. When I came more permanently to Belgium and I took a dog, a, a dog with the guide dogs, um, then then I had to I had to learn uh, Dutch, of course, because Half of my clients are, are in the middle age. So at that time, uh, nobody really watched TV. Of course, my child learned English on the TV more than she did at home. Yeah. Um, purely because, yeah, American movies, television, mm-hmm. it's, it's all stimulating to, to, to learn the language. But my clients fell into the category that they, they didn't have a word of English. So I had to struggle on and mm-hmm. colleagues were trying yeah, help me out by saying it's okay, it's okay, I, I'll speak to you in English. Said, yeah, but that didn't help me. No, you have to, to get over the barrier. I think for English people, a language is very difficult. We're not used to it. It's not, it's not put in early enough in school no. when you are a sponge for language. So mm. I found it, I found the first six months very, very mentally tiring. I worked long days and I was trying to make myself, I used to have to go all the way around the houses to get to the point. You know, I had I didn't have the words for it. I didn't yes. have the vocabulary. So I kind of told a long t- story to get to the front line. And people had to have, you know, um, a little bit of patience. But I did get there. I got to the stage where I was going home with real headaches and everything, mm. just from constantly taking in, in Dutch what they said, trying to translate it into English, thinking of what I'm going to answer in English, and then attempting uh, in Dutch to, to speak it. Um, but I got to the stage where I was, had after six months, I was dreaming in Dutch. And the English people that I knew 
talking to me in Dutch and I was waking up thinking, oh, that's Emma. She doesn't speak a word of Dutch. And I was dreaming in fluent Dutch and I thought, right, I'm, I'm, I'm already there now. Yeah, that, that must have been a huge breakthrough. Yeah. So after a year in Belgium, you went back home again. So yeah. that must have been because... You were had all the freedom of being in a foreign country and you know an adventure. And then you had to go back home. Was that a bit yeah, of a? I, mm. Not really. I liked my job. I knew it was only uh, you know a gap year really. Uh, mm. Fifteen. I was still young and and I was I was tired of doing other things. I was a fanatic in my own sport, of course, in in obedience. And for that year, I of course the passport didn't scheme didn't uh, mm-hmm. exist then. Yeah. All the paperwork and documentation, and there was quarantine. And Penny, this first dog at that time, was already, I think, 11 or 12 years old. There's no way I would have put my dog through quarantine. No. No, no. So she stayed at home with my parents while I did that year away. Mm-hmm. But I was desperate to get back to my dog because, yes. thought, yeah, if anything happens to her while I'm not there, I would never yes. give myself. Um, so, really, uh, owning dogs put me off going out until the pet passport scheme gave me the freedom of, of, of taking them with me and coming back. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's no point in being able to take them with you and then coming back uh, uh, to work for three months in England and having to leave them in Belgium, which has got the same scenario um, reversed. So the pet passport scheme for me was fantastic. That gave me the freedom to do what I wanted. So, so what work did you do when you got back to England? Were you back to- uh, again for the RSPCA? I was a long time working for the RSPCA, yeah. and then I did uh, the last year. I worked at a quarantine kennels uh, down on the Watford uh, end in London end, and then the people I worked for in Belgium contacted me again and asked me to come and work uh, full time uh, wow. and come back to them. So uh, yeah, it took off there, and, and and like I say, I left the country. I think at twenty two, twenty three. And uh, yeah, more based here in Holland. I have lived a fair few years in Holland. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm working for a, for a Dutch company. I was working for a Dutch company. Then I transferred to the Belgian guide dog school. Moved to Belgium, which is only literally 20 minutes. It sounds like you're missing a whole country, but it's really only up the road. <laughs> um, and and worked for that for that uh, for the good Belgian guide dog school for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And now I'm working again for the for the because right. I remember last time I spoke to you that um, in that era, um, assistance dog trainers in England were—it it really was still not really a career at that point. It was very difficult to earn enough money to survive, yeah. and um, there were more opportunities in Europe um, because Absolutely. maybe the system was slightly different, and that. It was less, um, well, from remembering looking this all up a few years back, it seems to be more integrated into the health system, that it's sort of not relying on charity as much, that mm-hmm. if, you're, if your health would be improved by having a guide dog, there is a part of your, well, there's a government payment that's, able to be accessed by the company um, by the organizations yeah. and it, there's sort of an integration there that it's not all charitable donation um yeah. so uh, as a trainer you were able to um actually have a real life <laughs> is, this, is that true was that part of the attraction 
action. Exactly. Well, and, and not only that, there was, uh, of course, I was in, I, I was in dogs and earned very little money in the first years, purely because you got up and you ate and you slept and you, you did everything dogs purely because you loved dogs. Yes. You know, my mum uh, even remarks now that I used to get my, my pay uh, check in a little brown envelope and I used to stack them on, on, on the dressing table. And they'd go unopened. I didn't need anything. I had my dogs. I went to the dog club four nights a week. I worked from seven o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night at the LSPCA. I didn't have time to do anything else. No. <laughs> but, uh, of course, when you get older and, and, and you want to, uh, actually do and live properly and, 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 you know, create a home and all the rest of it, um, you've got to earn. But everybody, there was far too much competition in the few jobs that there was. There were jobs about hearing dogs for the deaf. There's, I mean, the Guide Dogs Association um, have, have many, many uh, setups in, 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 in various parts of England, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very hard to get a foot in the door when you were just a wannabe and, and not actually proved yourself. Okay, you've been in the sport and you've been to a high uh, level, but you're not, you're, you're not proven in people skills. You know, training a guide dog own assistance dog you've got to be able to i, I can't just train a dog up um, for a client with usher syndrome they're deaf and they're blind and hand them the dog and say okay get on with it i have to i have to understand from the client's point of view as well what their needs are what their frustrations are and try and mix them together so you need a lot of people skills working with dogs as well of course if yes. you know it's yeah. not just talking about the dog, it's the one that's coming onto the line, of course. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it, there was a lot more competition, and it was all down south, and I lived up north, you know, yeah. real deep up north, uh, uh, in Blackpool Seaside. Um, so it was the case of, well, if I've got to move five or six hours drive away anyway, I might as well go where there are more opportunities to find the ladder quicker. Yes. Which is why I exited. I did try uh, in St. Anne's. Again, I did it for a year. I did everything for a year at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was uh, St. Anne's, uh, Blackpool and St. Anne's dog warden. And I thought, mm-hmm. this is great. I know my own hometown. I've been growing up here. Um, I can round up for uh, stray dogs. Uh, you know, it, Teach people what things, you know, what's what it's about risk, uh, responsibility for the dog and not having latchkey dogs and, and you know, in, informing the public about getting uh, and being a help. But of mm-hmm. course, that's a job that is very limiting because half you, can, you do have time to round up a problem dog or a dog that's crossing the street or causing an accident. But the rest of the time, the council fill, you, fill your hours with going down sewer drains and baking rat traps and uh, I spent more time climbing ladders and, and going down drains than I actually saw any dog for but no more dog water. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't really recognised as a job in itself. Instead of taking that further, we kind of mixed that with another load of a load of jobs that nobody wanted really. So yeah. um so, you know, I, I thought a board is better. And of course the you, the, the room that you have to travel here, you know, I'm, I'm based in Belgium, uh, yeah. Holland's 20 minutes away, France is an hour away, Germany is 40 minutes away. You're really central to, well, everywhere. If I do a dog show 
with my dog. I can decide who I compete in, in England, France, Germany, Holland, where of all the surrounding countries. You know, yeah. I, I, I can compete where I feel like it. If the weather's better in France, then you go to France, can you? And, and we've got that luxury, of course, here. But I do like the open lifestyle, I think, the culture. Uh, nobody, uh, I always felt that in England, nobody understood my uh, sense of humour. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I just felt in, in Europe they, they took to me better. Maybe it's because there was a novelty and they've just been putting up with me for this just a lot of time. I think that... Um, I'm I'm from Liverpool, so I I think that the the north of England is is a, is is like a different country to the south of England. Absolutely. People talk to each other in the north; yeah. they don't in the south. So it's it's a it, it is we are a divided nation, and um, yeah, the sense of humour is very different. And um, yeah, people are so serious, aren't they? <laughs> but I remember I worked, when I started work for academic animals. I worked many years in combination with my normal job for academic animals. That's um, a company that provides animals for TV and film and worldwide. Uh, Travelled with many animals for filming. And when I started to work for the company, um, I had only met the wife because the husband Roger was working away for three months in Czech making a Sigourney Weaver film mm. um, and uh, when he came back, he's a Londoner, she was a Dutch, she was <sighs> Dutch and when I came back, uh, when he came back and I'd been at base and I was fully feeling at home and chatting to the wife who had really good English, luckily, and, but I was so really looking forward to working for an English guy and yeah. he walked in, but he's a Londoner, so he walked in and he said three sentences and I answered what I thought was the answer. And we both looked at Tinica and I said, what did he say? And he said, what did she say? He didn't <laughs> understand. And both of us being English and didn't understand the word of each other's language, which is crazy, eh? you think? Like you say, a London accent is totally different you know, to a Northern accent. And they have no slang, which, you know, that's the one difference with the language you, my, my parents thought once I started speaking Dutch that I started speaking posh because I'm from Blackpool, I shouldn't be speaking posh. But what you do lose when you're working in a second language is you lose your accent, you lose your slang words um, because there's no point in using a slang word. A Dutch person would not know what you meant. It's not no. in the dictionary. Hmm. So you tend to speak you know, Queen's English so that you are understood better, so your pronunciation is better um, and your wording is, your wording is better. And um, so, yeah, you lose, you lose your, your northern plan, of course. Yeah, I've I, I found that um, when I first came down, um, people just kept trying to trick me to say certain words because they, they like to hear, you know, hairbrush. Or, uh, actually, I don't yeah. know whether I still say it, northern or not because i it, it got tiresome after a while because they, they don't actually listen to what you say they just want to hear you say i love to yeah it was yeah. Sort of, you know how rude because I, I was thinking everybody speaks peculiar down here and I, and I don't sort of laugh at them and say oh gosh fancy saying it like that but 
yes as as we get older we get more kind and um i i just it was just the novelty they got they got very um overexcited about them yeah but i love to hear um, a northern accent now and if i if i'm anywhere i'm always going where are you from where are you from and it was it's it's um yeah sounds of home it's surprising how quickly it comes back when you're skyping oh. with your parents or something and uh and all of a sudden you're back into you're back into your northern yeah your childhood yeah it is it's lovely memories. It. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's in there somewhere. So, guide dogs in um in Europe. How how progressive were they? Did they have any amazing techniques that that you were just you or was it just evolving when it, you first started? It, uh, well, it it was evolved. It was it was uh, about ten years. Uh, you were busy about ten years. When I got here, I uh, I worked for the for the Belgian Guide Dog Centre, and that was set up by a blind lady, uh, Adeline herself, purely because she had problems getting an, assist, an official uh, assistance dog, and right. her first assistance dog was one that was exported, and she had permission to export from the UK. Right. And then she decided that the people in in Belgium and and surrounding areas should should if they've got a right to a guide dog. Uh, they should be able to get one and not have to go to the length that she did with her dog yes. and, and all the expense and trouble of walking around with a white cane if you don't want to, if you want another way of, of doing it. Yes. Um, so she set up the school, but various schools being set up. Of course, we've gone through the years where a lot of people have branched out and tried to or set up individual private guide dog training because mm-hmm. the funds are there from for, for the clients. Um, if they're insured, if they've got health insurance, they're, they're allowed to apply for a guide dog if they need one, they're assessed, and the money's made freely available to them. So whether that goes to a private concern or an official, uh, school that's, that's, that's headed, you know, by a bigger authority, um, everybody's free to get guide dog where they want to. Um, so of course you get a lot of trainers, uh, yeah, jumping in on it thinking, well, that's a lot of money that you get, you know, uh, 17,000 euros for a dog. I'm going to be a guide dog trainer. But of mm-hmm. course, what they don't realize is you've got to maintain it for 15 years with each individual client. And if I train 10 dogs a year, those 10 dogs have got to function for the next seven to 10 years. So mm-hmm. you've got to be every three months to those clients. Now, if you've worked five years and you've got out 50 dogs, you've got to see those 50 dogs twice a year. Now, they might be at the other end of the country, of course. So mm-hmm. if you're going to do the job properly, you need, you need, you can't do it as a, as a one-man band. I don't see it. Um, I like the luxury. You know, I spent, we spent 10 years here building up, um, a home environment with fantastic facilities. Because not only did I want to be around my own dogs all day, but I wanted to do it from home. I didn't want to take dogs out of the commercial kennels that had been mm. in a kennel environment for 24 hours and then brought out for an hour, try to achieve some kind of training and, and, and bond with the dog and then put it back in the kennel and go and get another one. Mm. Um, knowing that they're going stir crazy for anything that's going on in that situation. Mm. You know, a lot of guide dogs kennels have Generation kennels, they have to have somewhere yes. to put the dogs when they weren't busy. But knowing dogs, they, you know, they, they, they act like dogs. 
Mm. They run around, they get overexcited, they play too long, they hurt themselves, they need supervision. Um, and I, I wanted to really, I think it was a lot for many dogs thinking the puppy walker situation, mm. um, being a house pet and raised in the house with somebody for a year. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And then it was a big traumatic change for them to yeah. come into the school, um, even if they'd had a brief weekend there. Uh, they'd lost their family, the rug was pulled underneath them. They were a relatively young dog, quite insecure. They didn't have enough knowledge to, to stabilise. And then they were sent out with different trainers to start the actual job. And I felt it was a really hard, you know, some dogs didn't make it just because of that, which I thought was crazy because you've got a year um, in, invested by the people that have raised the dog. They start off with, you owe it to them. Uh, you owe it to the breeder that's very well in that, a nice book. And certainly to the family that's put some time into it. And I really wanted to do it from home base, to have dogs as our own family dogs, um, and have the facilities to care for them properly and work out at home. So I was already working on that quite early. This is a great job, fantastic job, but there's a lot of traveling and you need a good home base. You need somebody to be there for your animals. My dogs aren't used to being away, but if I, Fly to Czechoslovakia to do a, to do a film set and I take four with me. Who's going to look after the other eight? Because yes. they're used to being pampered and having people around and, and being played with and, and their day being filled mentally and physically. Yes. Um, so I, I'm really, I, I really love how it's all evolved in the last years because they've moved away. They've moved away from the commercial tenants and because it's proved that it works. Um, the company I work for, Kraus uh, Gadget School in, in Holland, mm-hmm. they have completely moved away from an old commercial tenant situation. They've built a new a complex where there's where there's only dogs coming in that are going straight to the client. They're mm-hmm. going straight from the private trainer, so they have 15 trainers like me that work from home. We take the dog from the from the from the puppy walker. We take it to home, we train it into four and six months, and it goes directly to the client. So the dog is, yeah, day and night, day and night, the difference in the dog. It's not being stressed, it's not being traumatized. Um, it, it's been modeled already from being birth and through the puppy walkers, and it's already, it's already, by the time it comes in our hands, it knows what, what its job's going to be. It's had yeah. some. You know, it's had a plan right from the beginning and it's not put in any, any stressful situation. So I love it now that it's not, I mean, if we think back when I just said we were talking about check chains and old fashioned methods of training. Yes. And, and now you say, well, yeah, not even putting it on in the kennel. It's not about putting it on in the kennel. I have a covered exercise area where we can play if I'm going out to train a dog and it's raining. I can turn two or three or four dogs loose to play about and not get soaking wet. And have pipe music and, and balls hanging in all that way, amuse themselves while I'm away working on one dog. Um, it, of course, it's functional to be able to contain a dog. You can't mm. just let everything uh, run wild. Um, I, I have dogs from a tiny, tiny dog to mop a great big dog, of course. Um, mm. And you can't just say, okay, I'm just disappearing for now and get on with it. Um, mm. But but for the, for the prison life, uh, environment that you have for dogs, right? Yeah. You know, that's all just fear. That's all just fear. And I think yeah. in England too. 
I, I totally agree because I, I think the failure rate is so high because you break so many good dogs because I, I think in the last five years our school failure rate apart from now and again you get a genetically scared dog a yeah. dog that no matter what you do what kind of upbringing you have it's it's just quite a scared dog it's a nervous disposition and mm. that is proven that a genetic fear is something that you can, can hardly do anything about. Not saying it's not going to lead a perfectly normal life as a pet uh, in the in a right chosen home. It's not going to be a dog that's going to be able to take to the market every week and take on travels everywhere. It's quite happy being a house and home dog. Um, yes. And you can place them very, very, very successfully in that situation. Not every dog is born to be a guide dog, of course, or a business dog. Yeah. Um, but, well, not every dog's. Uh, born to be on TV or, or do dog dance either. So, you know, so they, they, they have a choice. But we very rarely lose a dog on anything other than health. Yeah. We can really concentrate uh, um, on buying very good well-dressed puppies that have been health tested um, that we know generations before that, that there's unlikely to be any problems. Of course, you can always have, you know, mother nature is cool. And sometimes you have an odd cataract or an eye disorder, an involved retriever, or a hip a problem. Even from two good dogs, um, mm. you can have that. And certainly in retrievers. Um, but there's, there's been, the last years, almost everything I've trained in the last five years have been dogs like your dog, Poodle Crosses, Poodle Cross Labrador, Poodle Cross, uh, and not really for the health um, side of it. Or, or the disposition purely because of the hair. Most yeah. people say, if it's possible, I'd, I'd like to do it purely because they don't shed. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing worse for a blind person than giving them a golden lapidor because yeah. you can't keep the house clean. The dog gets off the couch and the couch is white. Yeah. And so we don't see that. But then the next visitor that comes in, you know, think, oh, I, I live in a dirty house because the dog's been like on, on the dark yeah. um, But no, we, we, we do do a lot of, a lot of crosses. But yeah. um, almost everything that's, if it, if it does fail the program, it's usually on health uh, at 12 to 18 months. And, and very rarely, if you've done the job correctly on the, on the steps, you know, from birth to a, into a trainer, if you've done everything correctly, it shouldn't be to get you thrown out there or, or overlooked because of the behaviour problem. That's you wonderful. And it's a much nicer life for everybody. I mean, it must be great to be able to to work, because I think now with, in lockdown, people have actually really enjoyed working from home. Absolutely. And, and, it, and it, it is actually a much, a much better way if you've got, yeah, family. If you've got dogs, if you've yeah, um. it's quite difficult. I find because people think you're always available. Yeah, yeah, and you've got to be very straight um, in the fact that yeah, um, I say well now I'm busy. You know, in the morning I'm training. I'm out training my guide dogs, and between that time and that time, I'm not available. Of course, you've got the flexibility working from home. If it's a boiling hot day, Friday we've given 36 degrees here. There mm. won't be one dog that wants to go out at 12 o'clock and work in 36 
So you've got the choice, that's the beauty and the flexibility. You can go out with that dog at six o'clock in the morning. And when the sun drops in the evening, you can go out at eight o'clock at night and you can train whenever you want. That I do love the flexibility in it. But you've got to be clear to family and friends and, and people around you that they don't just think, oh, well, Jules is home because she's working from home. Because other people can interrupt your whole day. Yes. And your whole day is gone before you know it. You think, um, oh, yeah, I'll call in for a coffee. And then there's another now of them. And they say, yeah, okay, I'm going to get on with the day. So I am quite strong now. You know, the one thing is, and you've no weekends anymore. When you've got dogs, you've got no weekends. I quite often lose the day and mm. think, well, is it not Wednesday today? And no, no, it's Thursday. Um, <laughs> it's very easy to lose the track of time. <clears throat> but you've got to be very strict on doing what you need to do and not letting two people take um, advantage of you being there. So career-wise, everything was was ticking all the boxes. So at what point did you think, ah, right, um, when you were doing obedience, when was heel work to music or freestyle? When was that kicking off? Were you one of the well, first? I did obedience until I actually left full-time from England. Mm-hmm. And then I worked a couple of years at the job. Um, and... I got in touch with somebody that did an English style obedience because they did a, a different type of obedience here in Belgium or Holland. Mm-hmm. And then I got in touch with um, somebody that was doing DOS, which is a Dutch obedience society, and they were running English type shows. So I could then, uh, once a month, I could do just like an obedience show in England. It was held under the same rules. Um, I could do my sport again, which I love, but then I'm, my job moved over the border and it was just too far to go on, 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 a, on, a, you know, on one visit. I'd be, I'd be four and a half, five hours driving to get there, um, yeah. just to complete. So I had to give it up for a while, but I wasn't really, yeah, put off by that. I've always trained all my dogs a basic, a, a basic obedience and I do like the exercise as my favorite exercise. I have my favourite tricks that I set in every dog. Um, but once I once I um, um, moved, I went to work for the guy dog school in where I work for now. But then the first time, because I thought it was twice. Um, when I first started with them, Martin Kaus was doing a TV program that was filming animals all around the world. Right. Um, he went to California. And he came back from this trip, and I was working for his dad at school at the time. And he came back from this trip, and we got into it. We were always talking pretty, pretty, pretty. That was the whole thing, man. We we would talk behavioral stuff for hours. So we came back from California, and he says, And now I've seen something that's just up your street. I've seen this woman called Sandra Davis working with little water college, dancing with a dog at the getaway. He said, It's got obedience. It's, she's got absolute control of the dog. It's actually doing tricks to music, and she's, you know, putting uh, putting her movement to what the dog's doing. And he said, with your background, obedience, being loving trick training, um, and having such a rapport with your dog, he said that would be right up your street. I said, I hope you videoed it. I did better than that. He said, I brought a video back with me. So I showed, he gave me a VCR video of this 
Sandra Davis, which, who was actually a Canadian, but she was one of the first people that brought it to anybody's attention, of course, before Mary Ray did in England. Yeah. Um, so I was already hooked. It's been a minute I saw it, I thought, this is for me. And because there was no way of really doing my old sport of obedience in the area that I live, and having the showcase of working for somebody that had a commercial setup, but was working on a TV program every week, I had the front for it. So every time I went into work and he wanted a filler or a gap uh, in his program, he invited me into the studio with the dogs, let put the music on in the background and let's have you do some tricks and some dog dance. So I could promote it. And of course, then the, t- the, the TV channels get a whiff of it and see a clip somewhere and say, we need to the news. Um, and you can, you get to showcase it, you know, what is the relative news sport. But it wasn't until 2000, the year 2000, that the first actual competition event was organized. Um, and it was attended by, I think, 200 competitors. Yeah. From both Holland, which was a mega big up. I mean, for, for Rio, for such a small country as Belgium and Holland, it's held in Belgium. And there was so many men competitors there. Um, but it was the first one. And it kicked off, but it also, it brought it to a lot of dog clubs that got a bit stuck in the way. If either they were old obedience dog clubs with the check chain scenario that they couldn't move past, or they were the new clicker training people that thought, well, if I click everything, it will come good, well, which it doesn't. You still need the behavioural stuff. You know, you can't just click everything. You've got to say when it's wrong. Um, and there was no, yeah, and there was no real interest. You got, it was hard for little dog clubs to keep going at the time. Yeah. Um, and unless they have, unless people had a real problem dog, you didn't turn to that kind of dog club anymore. So it gave something of interest to all these little dog clubs to bring something in a new sport, whereas it all you were promoting was, was nice interaction with your dog, positive interaction with your dog. Do you want to compete with it? Okay, if you don't want to compete with it, you just want your dog to do cute tricks and listen to you when you're talking to it, um, then that can, and then that's and it kind of yeah, gave the little clubs new life when it first started. So I got involved for the first couple of years really promoting that and teaching yeah. other trainers how to bring it in, in class sports, what to start off with. So again, busy, busy, always for somebody else. <laughs> Oh wow! So, um, uh, what? Because there was um, it, it, at the beginning here, works music was 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 more like obedience, and it, it it suddenly went, it, it suddenly took off and became much more artistic. Well, so, it was in England because you only used to what Mary did at first, of course, and Mary, a classic, perfect. I mean, she did the same thing that I was doing over here, gorgeous you know, in people's homes and, and gave people another out. You know, a lot of people that came from obedience to do something like that, you know, came away from obedience, thought, well, I'm getting older, I can't keep up the standard, I can't train four hours heel work every day, but I have a good base of obedience through doing obedience, which you still need for a dog dance dog as well, you know. You, not everybody's put a tears and my feet at home. If you don't give them a job to do, you know, they do herd the children all day um, mm. and retrieve uh, constantly all evening. You, you've got to have some input with the dog that's 
you know, put me to training. Um, but but she was doing it also um, quite classically. Here was the music was for her, who's been you know a, a mega a mega star in obedience. Um, that was of course her forte. So she did actual the first versions of her work for music. And always English, my English friends from the dog world always said, yeah, but you, 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 you're much more expressive and you do much more wild tricks. It's yeah. just that it started the other way around with us because we got the American influence. I see. Canadian. And Mary made her up, made the influence in the UK. Um, and it wasn't until the passport scheme kicked in and people from these countries could compete in England that you got a kind of a mix. That you've got yeah. people talking together and saying, "Well, I quite like your style, and I'm going to put more freestyle into it." And free, and then they eventually split the divisions. So if you if you like to do the classic heel work to music, you did your ten positions heel work to music. And if you have a dog that couldn't, uh, you know, achieve that or wasn't good in that, but was a very good trick dog and put a story to it, you would there was still an outfall that you could, you could yeah. go into and freestyle. You know, I've never been, I was never like, even when I was young, like uh, the American lady that danced with the dog. She was a proper dancer. She was a ballroom dancer that, you know, um, knew how to move with the dog and was fantastic. I got into making up stories and giving it a theme really quickly because I cannot dance. You have to get a little bit more, yeah. But you're giving other people an out. I've always said that, that dog dance is a sport that's for old and young, and that is really true. You can, you can be whatever age, you can have whatever breed, you can be a great game. You know, you just choose a different style, a different type of background music, and you can still have so much fun with your dog doing it. And there's not that same competitive drive, I don't think, in the, the, as there is in, in something like obedience, where you're only aiming for the top, you know. Here you just aim for a nice routine and put it together that people, it's a spectator sport. Yes, it definitely is. It's a big, a big draw. So you, how did you get into the, the Britain's Got Talent competition? Because that, that's a different a different ball game, isn't it? So, well, to be honest, I was I was asked many times mm-hmm. via dog club or via work or via dog people or other acquaintances that have been on the audition, and they said, "Why don't you go? You know, your dog's the top winning dog in the country in in shows all year. Um, why don't you Why don't you take my piece off?" I mean, he was, he was at the top of his career at the time. He was, uh, I think, six and a half years old, seven years old. Um, he'd done everything, won everything. He was a champion in four different countries. What else are you going to do? So I thought, well, okay, we'll audition. Um, and I applied at Belgium's Got Talent. Right. So I went to the audition and a few with the other, like, 3,000 people outside. Um, finally got in did my interview. I was told that I learned so much from that first time because of course what do I do naively? I set in all my big wild factor thing. I thought there's no way only one dog if only one dog is gonna go through and we don't want to make a dog show of it, it's gonna be my dog. So I start curtain reveal and the dog is stood in a handstand, a freestanding static handstand, balancing on its nose and he's on the stage. 
not amusement from the poor judges, not a smile or a gasp of how is that possible and how does it do that? You know, I'm the only person in Europe at the time that could do a, a handstand, something that was forbidden in England. Yeah. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, me coming out doing bizarre tricks and they were not impressed at all. And the, the Belgian judges, um, well, one of them said, well, I do love dogs, but I don't like, I don't agree with dogs on stage. So I thought, well, okay. I agree to a certain extent, purely because I'm in the film industry. I know what a busy environment it is. You've got to have a very, very stable dog that can do all that. You can't just take a pet dog and land yourself backstage on, on, on the TV series and, you know, have a, a live audience at the back. You're all at the back. You hear every camera drops, everything moves. You've got 100 people around you behind stage and many, many more along the way. Your dog's got to be bomb-proof. It's got to be completely bomb-proof. But it's also got to be able to work under that construction. So it's yeah. not for every dog. I've seen a lot of dogs really get uh, really scared and worried about an, an environment yeah. that is not being brought into. Of course, yeah. me doing not film work, I've always, when I have a young dog, if I take another dog to do a film work or a commercial, I always take my young dogs to be on the set to get used to that early on. So my dogs have that advantage, of course. Um, yes. But I thought, yeah, the dog was stable. He had to walk through 3,000 people to get through it. It still went into a fucking handstand when I asked it to, <laughs> in front of a live audience, and they yes. weren't blown away. Um, I did get through, and they, uh, and they said I was, uh, you know, was going to go through to the film department. But I thought, well, if one's already said she doesn't, well, she likes dogs, but she doesn't like them on stage. Um, another dog, another guy called Dan, he's an American, but of course, I uh, know uh, he's an English guy, he's an English guy, and he said, well, I'm a cat person. Um, so I, three out of the four replies, and I'd really done the best that I could do. I wouldn't, I didn't actually hold anything back thinking about mm. the second thing, um, display. So I thought, well, okay, we'll be out of here. Um, so when they called me back, I refused and I didn't sign the contract for those who've got talent. And mm-hmm. I kind of thought, well, it's not for me, Toby. And then I thought, well, people like dogs in England a lot more. You know, it's more mm-hmm. open to see dogs. I was doing a lot of dog filming, film work in England, mm-hmm. and we're a lot more used to it and it's been normal for England. I've probably got better a better chance in England. My parents were getting older, so I thought it will never get further past the, the audition stage. But I had the chance if I wanted, because I was living in Belgium and working in Holland at the time, and it was all over the place, I arranged to do the audition and combine it with a visit to my parents. And mm-hmm. I said, if I do, if you let me do the audition in Manchester, really early on was the first audition, then my parents will be able to at least be there. If I go onto the lives and it's down London, I mean, my dad's in his eighties. He's not going to be able to follow all that or get down and move that. It will make their day going to the studio and watching a live audition. Invite all the family who I haven't seen for a year and we'll make a big bit of a need up of it. So I went and did the audition in Manchester yeah. and uh, Simon wasn't really that impressed to start with, but of course it's, it's all Edited a little bit for TV and they take out the good bits because his first bit 
his first uh, work was, well, it's a little bit like carnival or a bit like a, like a, a fair, you know, a bit cheap and nasty, you know, cheap and nasty crocs. And, and I, I came away thinking of it for Sarton because I'd, I'd done a dog catcher routine and I'd actually won the trust with the dog catcher routine in 2013. And I've made a kind of short stage version of it. And I thought the idea is really nice. And people will know what you're doing. You can bring a bit of humour into it, chasing the dog around with a neck and stuff like that. Um, so it went down with everyone well, apart from Simon at first. But I think he was being a bit reserved because he's, he's very into his dog act, of course. So he's already setting the category quite high. Yeah. You know, he's, he's kind of sat there from impressing them. Come on. Um, so we did our audition and got through there, which left me in kind of a predicament because, yeah, then I'd got through, I hadn't got through in Belgium. I'd, I'd be trying to take part in Belgium, but then I'd got through in Manchester and, and yeah, gone through to the first cut. But of course, a, a lot of people fall out at that next stage. Yeah. Because as many, many people get, you know, votes, uh, and you go through. And he expects to then go into the live shows, but of course he cut about two, three people out to that first seventy foot. And then you invited to come back to the reveal to see if you're actually going to go on to the live show. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, don't get wound up about it. And to be honest, I put it away, got on with my job, and I forgot about it because that was early or late in that year, and it wasn't sort until March or April I was contacted from. We're going to do the reveal when we come back over for the reveal show. Um, so I said, yeah, okay. So night out with the girls, get planning while a trip home. And, uh, and then I got through to the reveal and I thought, oh shit, now I've got to, now I've got to get moving and make some shows. Of course, because we're going, we're going to be at least one more time live. Yeah. Um, and everybody was ringing me because, um, I, I, been on on the Saturday night. The audition was played on the last possible Saturday, the week before the live show. So the live started on the Monday, and the last BBC audition started with the or, or ended with the reveal show. And I still hadn't been seen, so everybody was ringing me saying, "Are you sure you've got through? <laughs> because you've not been on the telly." And next week they're advertising. Of course, I didn't watch English TV when I was done. I came back to Belgium while I was in Holland. Yeah. And I didn't see anything advertisement-wise. So, yeah, they said, uh, are you sure you've got food? Because you've not been on TV. And it's coming to reveal. So I run the program and said, what's going on? You've told me you've got food. You know, I'm away from the time. No, no, we always save a couple of unseen acts for the reveal show because otherwise it's just a reveal show. You've got nothing in between. So we, we save a couple of auditions for that last show. So on the Saturday I was played, but the Saturday that I was shown on English TV was the day I travelled to go to the live show. I just arrived in the hotel, in the hotel room. I just opened the door and dumped my bag down. And I, I'm watching my own audition on English TV. I thought, oh no, it's just gone out. And on the Tuesday, of course, I only had two practice days. On the Tuesday uh, was my uh, first uh, live show, and the audience voted uh, um, me through, which was from then on. I don't think my head was normal. From the minute I got there, from seeing the audition on TV, it kind of hit me that it was all real. And yeah. then I don't know where I was for that whole week. It was 
like magical and special and something you only you know go through once in your life it was a fabulous fabulous experience and uh, we were treated like royalty everybody that takes part is treated, treated like royalty mm-hmm. but it was a roller coaster of course of emotion and um yeah uh, it was it was lovely to do the show and i'm really glad it, it, it came off okay with the dog we just wanted it's hard to do live show i'm used to working for film and if it goes wrong you take another take yes. you go and take your dog out for a coffee break you come back you give it a drink you say oh time out for five minutes give the dog a go play ball with it relax it again come back into the <laughs> studio you don't get that at no. CGT, it's a circus and it's and it's loud and it's and it's busy and it's a live show. Um so that's yeah, that's even for me that was quite shocking from wool. Um, you know, really really uh, taking a gap from well this is real and I'm gonna be stood there when the curtains go back to you stood there for a live audience and it's televised. Um it's easy not, you know, to fall into distress. And I I just took myself back all those years ago uh, in obedience where you get in the ring and you tap the screen, you take a deep breath and you just close off everything around you and just concentrate on your dog. And thank God that, that the dog's just carrying me through it, really. You know each other that well, you know, and if I forgot something or I made a move in the wrong direction, my teeth just used to, like, steer me the right way. <laughs> if he came out the door and if I forgot the command to say, get in the cold, He'd, yeah. he'd look at me as if look stupid and come and just go and ram his head in the coat <laughs> just to show me what he's doing. Looking at it, so we got in, we got involved quite early on. But like I say, it, I kind of shelved it and forgotten it. And then I was confronted by, oh God, now the life has started and we got to do something about it. But that week went really, really fast. Of course. So and, you, how many dogs did you bring over with you? Because that must just. Three from the beginning. You've got to plan, of course. You've got to plan when when you come over for the live show. You audition with some tape. I always said from the beginning. Um, on the I actually said on the audition. Of course, we don't send out the whole audition. But I actually said the further if I do get further in the show because I have I have a multi dog household. Um, I want to add more dogs each act. Um, to tell the story, to tell the story yes. in, in, in a better way or a different way. It gives me more flexibility with my storyline than just sticking with one dog. My piece is a special dog, of course. He is a special dog. Um, but I have other dogs that are very talented and special too. Um, so I, when I came over for the lives, of course, I had to bring any dogs I'd written into any script. So for the live show on the Tuesday, the Toy Story, Chase was written into that story, so he had to be in. If I was good enough and I got through to the final, my final story had three dogs. So I had to come in. I only had one chance to come in with the dogs, of course, but it all came in the off chance that I would get through. I didn't know on the Tuesday that the lives, um, that the public would, would go me through, of course, did I? So yeah. I, I didn't actually, I, I had, you have to practice your live show. And your final, just in case you ever need your final, even so your singers and dancers have to do that, of course. So you have to bring any props or equipment and, and costumes, and in my case, dogs that you might need, do you, do you get to the final, of course. 
So did they put you up in a nice hotel with all these Always to Hilton, fantastic. Wow. Always to Hilton and the solidly for the dog. And you wake up right outside the football stadium. Um and walk on the football stadium green with your dog. So the very yeah. Like I say, we were treated like superstars, superstars. With, uh, nothing was too much. And the studio was within walking distance. And it was too far for a little skippy with his three legs. So uh, we sent somebody to carry him so that I could concentrate on the other dog because it was a big football match on at the time. And uh, I, did, I was frightened of him, you know, getting trampled on or trying to carry him through crowds and still leaving dogs. But we had enough people with us, luckily. But we sent somebody straight away to the studio to assist us. So, yeah, like I say, royal thing. <laughs> And did, did you, um, because you were instantly famous, really, so do, did you find loads of people wanting to have their photos taken with your dogs? And It was, it was, it was completely madness. It was completely madness. It's something, I'm always low-key, I Beverly. I'm, I'm always, I always push the dog into the spotlight, but I prefer to be in the background. I don't particularly like being in the spotlight. I'm the first to put the dog into a bed and, and say, go, go and stand next to the dog and I'll take the picture. <laughs> no, I don't need to be with the dog on the picture. Mm. <clears throat> so it kind of, yeah, throws you into stardom almost immediately. And on the Tuesday, we won the vote. And just practicing that week and going to the studio, of course, uh, every night there's a live show. Now, I wasn't on the Wednesday, the Thursday, the Friday, but I could go to the studio and do any planning and check my clocks. And we had a private room that we could practice in and had the dog get used to all that noise in the background and stuff like that. Um, but I remember coming round the, the corner to the studios, to the fancy studios, and seeing this great big waiting line queue because, of course, there's people who let people bumped on seats to go and fill the show for the live show. So an hour before, the whole road's full of people waiting. And as I have come round the corner and my feet was walking in front of me, um, the whole street erupted, Matty, Matty, and everybody's calling my dog. And I thought, what is this? People <laughs> running out onto the road to get a selfie with the dog. And I mean, quite even being rude, you know, trying to snatch the dog off you, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's like something I never see. That took a bit of getting used to. You know, luckily I had a couple of bodyguards with me. <laughs> but it, it was amazing. You don't expect that. Going even into the park, I had to protect him or send him behind the bush to have a pee because there was always a photographer that wanted to catch him in a pose that wasn't so, you know, nice and you don't want plastering all over the newspapers. So even taking him out. Or even going for a quick sneaky cigarette outside the Hilton late at night. And, <laughs> and, you know, in your pajamas like I normally do. I go down for a last cigarette in my pajamas. But you stood outside the Hilton. It's covered in press. And you don't <laughs> want everybody to see your pajamas under your coat. And you were taking having a cigarette, of course. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's <laughs> quite... Um, you've got no life anymore at that moment. Yeah. I thought, oh, no. I'm oh, no. quite glad to be home. But there's nowhere I can walk in England that, and still to this day, everybody rec recognises my feet. Yeah. If I walk through Cook, I just get 
in inundated with people and, and children, really young children that still remember the dog from the show. Oh. Uh, it's a very distinctive name as well. What, how did you come up with the name? Um, I, it was actually from a film. I thought it not Beverly Hills Cop or something. And there was a border collie in it called Matisse. And, of course, living in Belgium, the artist was very famous. And uh, when he was born, he was so perfectly marked, you know, with a classical blaze and everything. I thought, it's, it's really just a painting. And I'd like that like, name from the movie. So I thought I wanted something different. So it, it became Matisse. That's now it. there's a lot of Matisse, of course. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, yeah. A lot of brown white border colours as well. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So did you did you meet any any celebrities backstage? Did you did um, Matisse have any fans that um, um, tons? I, I mean, everybody that took part in the show, of course. But I mean, my daughter was horrified that I didn't even recognise so many people because I've been living abroad so so long, of course, and working abroad. I don't watch I don't watch EastEnders already more than twenty years. I don't watch Coronation Street. So these pe- these people coming, anybody coming up to you, it could have been anybody for all I care, you know. I don't oh. know her. Um, <laughs> and, and pop stars and little Mick sat on the floor um, cuddling with my dog. And I took photos just because I thought it was cute, this really skinny girl, you know, all curled up. My dog looked twice the size of her, all curled yeah. up upside down on the floor. And I sent it to my daughter and I said, oh, my piece is chilled. And she went, Mum. Do you realise who that is? Yes, our dog. No, no, look who's coming. That's little Mick. I said, well, who's little Mick? Oh, bless. So yeah, everybody, everybody involved with the with the show. But you do get amazing friendships. You know, I'm still in contact with a couple of people uh, uh, from the show, of course, purely because you spent a lot of close time with somebody in a stressful situation where that you're all, you know, not feeling really at home in um, and everybody leans on everybody there's a really good spot you know uh, a really good company for each other and separating the earth and whatever um, and the magician at, um, what was his name reminds me again uh, the magician he was tipped for the top uh, he was he was second in my year of course he kept he was on his phone all the time and uh, he kept saying, oh, at the bookies, uh, you know, your, your, your rating's going up, your rating. Oh, the dog's going to do it this year, the dog's going to do it. And I said, stop, stop, you know. I've heard uh, Callum singing and I thought, Callum's going to take it, you know. I was there just to show my second show, really. I had no, no idea that it was going to go our way, of course. <laughs> when you actually see your, I mean, I'm, I'm a good dog trainer, I don't, I don't take that away from myself and I've got a fantastic job. But Pudsey had only won three years previously. Yeah. So I consoled myself from they're not going to choose another dog so close to having, you know, Ashley and Pudsey still uh, doing the, the, the trip around England. They're still doing pantomime. They're still very much in the limelight. She's just bringing out her own little Pudsey memorabilia and stuff. They're not ready for another dog yet. So I was the only one really backstage that was really stress-free. Because I thought I'm the one with the dog, and the dog isn't going to win, so I can just go on and try and do my best, and then join the show and play it to my audience like I always do, as if everybody out there is under ten years old, and just go and tell your little dog a story and be in my element. So I didn't really have any stress 
to the final because I thought I'm just a filler really like you are on TV mm. um, because there's no way two years later another dog's going to take the top spot and like I say I'd heard Callum rehearsing and I went in to see the stage lighting and things like ventilators on the floor things that can be difficult for dogs if it's if they're walking past and they get a gust of air or there's a hot camera or a hot light or a cable that you can fall over I'm, I'm always big on stuff like that because i work in tv as well uh let's go and see what the you know the last thing i want to do is my dog to walk out into the darkness because we don't see past the lights and yeah. fall off the stage yeah. um going in and i heard callum scott doing this rehearsal for the live show mm. and every hair came up on my arm I was almost crying with emotion so beautifully so mm. and I thought he's he if he just does that tonight he's just gonna have the whole of England in, in tears it was beautiful um and he fluffed his words didn't he of course on the final so mm. heartbroken for him but like I say completely completely I was there was nobody more surprised than than I was at to still be there on stage and it takes ages and they've got adverts in between uh, and and that big countdown from everybody on the stage from the final and slowly everybody off the stage and we stood in the last three acts and I thought well yeah it can't get any better for me you know in the last three is also good and I'm still not expecting the top spot at that point because it can't be you know there's going to be somebody with a natural talent a singing or, or, or a natural talent and um, so it was completely, completely mind blown. I was still in shock. I don't know how I functioned, functioned in the program afterwards for the, for the other program, for the late program for the GP. You have to go upstairs afterwards and right. go straight live, um, to, to the other program. I don't even remember being there. I do not even remember being there. <laughs> I was in the head was still blown. Yeah, but it was, it was, it was fabulous. So that was, I mean, I, just I think when you when you weren't thinking there was any chance, it, it's even more special, really. So of course, of course, you, you go to take part, and you know when I first got through the audition, and then I'm, there was a lot of time in between, I could again decide before I signed any big contracts or anything, am I going to go for? And there was some time gap between my audition. And the, uh, and of course the live shows are the reveal and then the live shows. So I still have a say in do I take part or not. Um, and you've got to be able to stick it into your agenda. You've got to be able to come over for meetings. You've got to be able to come over for things like contract signing or, or, uh, even to, to look at where you're going to be training or there's a lot of to and going. You've got to have the time and the flexibility for it as well, of course. So once you decide you're on board, you've got to go wholeheartedly of course so I, I really told myself you know it's given me two opportunities to show my skills mm. um, and and put a very special dog you know we have dogs so little amount of years I mean yeah. they, they get so old so quickly now my thief is within a couple of months 14 years old you know oh. he auditioned at 7 he, he took part in the show at 8 you know, we're five and a half years further than that now. He's almost 14 years old. He goes so fast. And he has been a wonderful, wonderful dog for me, a wonderful tool, a wonderful aid. 
fantastic for my job, you know, picking clients at ease. Um, uh, it's been a fabulous all-round dog, fabulous dog in the sport. And I really thought, you know, he deserves it. He is a special dog. I think, you know, every now and again, like I say, every dog is special, but every now and again becomes a very special dog, you know, a salad uh, like you have. Yeah. Um, and one that's just imprinted on your on your on your life and shared yeah. your life and everything you've done. So I thought, well, I get two chances to show what a special bond we have together and what yeah. we can achieve together. And that's the audition and the live show. And yeah, we'll go for it. So I didn't promise myself anything further than that because I never presumed we would get further than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I haven't even practiced my end show. Because I didn't think I'd need it. Gosh. So, all of a sudden, after Tuesday, the, the, because a dog that has to walk a tightrope has to walk it regularly because they have to walk like a cat over the rope. Um, yeah. And you need those muscles. You need the muscles in the feet to be able to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. And I will never endanger one of my dogs. So yeah. I said straight away, and now we need to go and practice in there. Um, purely because um, we went to a hotel and asked permission because we could have done structural damage at two posts in the middle of a, of a, a restaurant, two great big concrete pillars, and put up our, <laughs> our setup and risk pulling the whole <laughs> pulling the whole hotel down, you know, just to get up to uh, two guide ropes to be able to do the guide rope training for it. So. Like, yeah. So there was a, a yeah, it, and the, the so what what was it like? So that when you got you, you weren't even sure you were going to get through to the live final, and then you you you, you you're on the stage and you've actually well, won. obviously I've been to the I've been in for the reveal show, so I knew I was going to do that live final before I travelled for the live week, so. Mm. Um, I've done my audition and then called back for the reveal. So we'd been in for the reveal show and they filmed the reveal show. And of course, that's still got to be hushed enough to know who's getting through and not because they play that out, of course, on the weekly shows. And they do two reveal shows before the live begin. So I was, of course, allowed to know, but you, you can't really tell anybody that you're taking part and who's got through and who's not to avoid obviously disappointment. So I knew I was going through to the lives because I'd done the reveal. So when I arrived uh, in, in uh, uh, for the lives week, I arrived on the Saturday to prepare for Tuesday. Right. And that's when I first saw my audition go out. And that was that when it almost yeah, became real for me, really. But like I say, everything was really centered about the Tuesday. I was hoping not to get too late at all in the week. You don't know what night you're on. Yeah. Uh, first we changed it and it was going to be Monday and then it was going to be Thursday and I said I don't care when it is my dogs are prepped for it they you know, you know what they've got to do we only need to you know, go and have a little practice on the stage before we go on mm-hmm. um, and no worries so uh, yeah like I say I didn't really have to look past that really yeah. I never went on DGT to have a life changing experience because I'm already doing what I love, Beverly. I have created my own paradigm for, yes. for my dogs, for my work dogs. I love working from home. I love being here. The last thing I want to do is be traveling around the world constantly, living out of a suitcase and in hotels 
even in the most beautiful places. They know they're not beautiful when you've no one to share them with because your family's at home looking after the rest of the gang. Um, so it, I, I never really wanted that lifestyle of being, you know, a star that was looking from mm. one place to another. Um, I just wanted to show what I was capable of with a very special dog, which I achieved. And you certainly did. So what was, because you must have been really up. When did the media go weird? Was that overnight? What, what, what yeah, happened? it was literally overnight. We didn't, we didn't really have um, any, well, of course, you, when you've won the show, first of all, you go to the other BGC programme, right? the light one. Um, so you're still in the studio. I didn't actually get the first drink in my hand for three hours after the show. I had, you know, I was, I was gasping for air because you go from interview to interview. Then I was interviewed by last year's winners or the year before's winners. And then you've got to go with another presenter do this and we need it in 17 different places. So yeah. you're literally just plucked backstage and sent to wherever you need to do. And now you need to go there, now you need to, and you just go with the flow. But it's all really just spinning around your head and it's not, I didn't even see my group of people Roger and Christine that were there to help me with my dogs and my props and everything. I didn't, the last time I saw them was on stage and three hours later I was still looking for them. You know, it was just a bedlam because everybody wanted to speak to the winner and everybody wanted to take photos and, and we needed yet several things we tied up to with the show, of course. You know, they've got rights to use the first and whatever they need to do. So you go from one interview to the next. I hardly had any voice left. And by the time I got back to the backstage party, the BGC party, everybody had, was like packing up and getting ready to go. And I hadn't even drunk an orange yet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so, so yeah, it, it went late into the night uh, before we, I think it was like, um, it's certainly three or four o'clock in the morning when we got back to the hotel. And of course, people, down the boring route, your dogs have been in the studio. You've only had a, a, a quick pee outside where you've needed to. My dogs go when they're cold anyway, or when I've ever asked to. So it's easy in a strange place to get them to have a pee or something. But you want to give them some relaxed time. So I go down to the field then at three o'clock in the morning and let them run off a bit of stress and be a bit of a dog, you know, and look after your dogs and feed them something nice. And then finally fall into your bed at four o'clock, knowing that there's going to be a car at ten to six outside the Hilton waiting to pick you up for all the morning programs. Oh my goodness. All the breakfast two, three programs and good morning Britain and your taxi from one interview to another and you find yourself kind of sort of sleep in the makeup chair. And you've literally had no sleep, and then you've got to go and do another interview, and another analysis of healing. Yeah, and like I say, that uh, that uh, definitely honest me being me interview on the couch. Um, when she said, "Oh, and that trick, and that trick with your dog, uh, with with the tightrope," and yeah, straight away, I've never hidden it. Uh, that was Chase. Yeah, of course that was Chase. He was he was in the Tuesday show as well. And I was just being myself, being honest, and and never thought that the press would turn it upside down and try and make it, 
yeah, even family and friends were ringing me what, what's going on and where's all this negativity coming from. And I said, I, I was completely blown out, but baffled by it. But everybody was. Everybody was baffled by it. It was shocking. Even yeah. the runner that, that I had at DGT and everybody around there, it, 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 was just, it was just silly from the press to do something like that. And why can't you be euphoric? Why can't you enjoy the minute? You know, I didn't get really five minutes before the pissed on my parade, really. Um, because it's not even settled when you're enjoying it before you get in the phone call saying the papers are just taken totally wrong and, and, you know, there's not a lot anyone can do with that. It's all going to be front page tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, and like you say, euphoria is, is, yeah, you're just wondering what, well, what, you know, what went wrong, what went wrong there. It was, it was, I, I don't really think about it anymore, purely because it, at the time it really got that, it got to me because of course you've put a year's effort into the show. It's taken a year of your life to prepare, get through your auditions, planning, build yourself new props, have an idea, get your ideas passed, a lot of mails to and fro, a lot of, it's taken a lot of time and energy for a year. Mm-hmm. And then you're in the spotlight, um, for one evening and that same evening almost. It all, it all, you know, goes art up really, um, and it was to- a total surprise, really, a total surprise that the papers decided to, you know, take it and run with it in that way because um, it was a shame for the show because they're very supportive. They treated everybody with dignity and 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 respect, and I had a fabulous. I, I would repeat it tomorrow. Um, there was nothing negative. Not, not one negative thing about the show whatsoever um, that, that I regret. And I think it was a shame for the show as well. And then everybody organising the show, running the show, uh, everybody behind the scenes that, that goes so far to make a fantastic show. It was, it was you know, a, a bit of a, a black cloud hanging over everybody, really, because we totally didn't expect it. But, yeah, like I say, I, I was very lucky in that, I, I had to look after my parents because they were had press in the driveway and, and stuff like that. I was very lucky because I could get in my car and drive to the tunnel and bugger off back to Belgium. And it really didn't bother me a great deal, apart from the Daily Mail camping on my front lawn for the week and following my child to school. Um, oh, uh, it was doable from this side because every time they wanted to annoy me, they had to send somebody from the UK or Brussels um, and hang over my gate asking for an interview or something. But I was more worried about my friends and family and, and certainly my parents in the races at home because they didn't understand it. No. I think that was probably the era that the, 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 the press really were out of control. That yeah. There was um, the, it used to be a much more gentle press, but it seems that they it almost got to eating eating people and sort of just wanting to to destroy things. And yeah. that the, there was um, I'm not sure what year it was when there was the dog that died at Crufts, the Irish settlement. Yes, I remember that was in between. Yes, and it was like it doesn't matter what the facts are. Let's yeah. put 
a shocking story on the front page. They even tried to link that because oh, uh, that, that is a way out coincidence, right? But that Irish setter that uh, was taken ill and it was already ill, it, came, it was taken ill. I mean, there only way two days to do something come back. So it was ill actually before it went. It just got worse while it was at the cross and on the way home. Um, it, the problem was found here locally. But the dog lived literally three streets away. That English, the Irish setter lady, mm. with the four Irish setters, lived in Tongeren. So the press get hold of. Wait a minute, we know somebody with a famous dog that lives in Tongeren in Belgium. Jules O'Dwyer. She must have some. No, Matisse must have something to do with it. Yes. Oh so my goodness. killer. <laughs> But, and you've got to laugh because otherwise you'd go nuts, Beverly, because you think, well, where are they? I, I had, I had the paper hanging in my, oh, well, weeks. So you, you couldn't go anywhere or get in a car outside. I was parking in the car park, climbing over the fence to get to my car just to not have to press because mm. I can, I can be polite. You know, I'm contracted for, for the show, so I can't say anything anyway. Why would I? You know, uh, why would I risk anybody, anything detrimental being said about the show or myself? I'm not going to talk to people who are just going to write what they bloody well want to write anyway. So there's no, there's no, you know, communicating with them. They're not going to write what you want to, what you want no. to write. So I stopped talking to press and I just dodged them. And I remember having a big discussion at the gate while I was very firm and I, uh, I was walking about in the garden and somebody was waving and waving and hanging over the over the two foot fence. And there was a whole sea of dogs around me. And uh, I walked towards the fence to speak to them. And I said, uh, "Sorry, you're going to have to leave me on private property." Yeah, can we can we just have an interview? No, no. And I said very politely and firmly, but it was quite insistent. Had you know that it can be quite insistent. Um, and he was determined to take a photograph of my feet. Now, Matisse stood on at my feet at that point, but we're behind a gate, you know, the the, the green uh, fencing, chain link fencing. Yeah. And I said, I do not want to give an interview. I am not. I've not arranged with you to have an, an interview. I'm busy working, and I'm certainly not going to make the time for you because I've had nothing. Every time I've given in, it's been another negative. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. another negative article, and I simply can't trust you. So, no. Can we just take a photo of the dogs? I said, no, because I know what you like. You're going to take a photo now of the dog on the other side of the gate, and it's going to be on the news headlines tomorrow morning. Matisse wins DGT, got the cash, and now in a cage because <laughs> you're taking a picture of him behind a gate, which could be misinterpreted. As if the dog's in a kennel when he's never been in the kennel in his whole bloody life. So yeah, it got I got very allergic to the press. Yes. Um, and I sent them away with a flea in the rear, and I said, if you because the dogs are clicking away, whether you're saying it or not, they're clicking away, taking photos. I sent all the dogs around the house. I sent I think I, there must have been eight or ten dogs out, and I sent them all around the house to the kitchen, so they run around the whole. Uh, the whole domain and they scoot round to the kitchen on the award uh, based world. So I send them out and I send the people away. So they wait in their car 
for three or four hours. Mm-hmm. And I'm determined not to go out then. And I'm certainly not going to take any dogs out because he only wants a picture of the dog. So I comes online later that evening and I'm on the front page again. And I thought, well, how is that possible? I've judged it. I haven't given anything into you, I. My whole argument with him is if I was the nastiest person because I was being very negative and saying, well, quite frankly, bugger off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a picture of the neighbour walking Matisse, an unidentified person walking Matisse. I thought, well, that ain't Matisse. But my neighbour five doors down has a brown and white border collie. So those people, those reporters that were in that car, have seen my neighbour walking his dog, thought that looks like my feet, although it's a bit half the size, take a photo of it, and that makes frontline headlines the next day. It, It was, it was, they were ruthless, they were ruthless. And, you know, my, we're now five years ago, my, my child was, my daughter was 15, and, which is, a horrible age anyway, you know, you've got, you're a teenager and, and you're just finding your way in the world and your mother is thrown on TV almost overnight and we have a, a very low-key life, a low-profile life and then all of a sudden everything's in the spotlight and every time you answer the phone or the door, it's pressed. Um, and she was literally hounded, followed to school, waited outside school for breaks to get a glimpse of her and ask her questions and at 15 years old, you know, yourself having children, so not really open to being interviewed on the, uh, at the front of the school. And it was just, I just felt it was, it was unfortunately out of my control and I like to be in control. Yeah. And, and that's something that you simply can't control. I could, I could control anything to do with the program. There was anything you, you didn't like, you discussed it, you came to an agreement and everything, everything was easy. Uh, you know, to deal with the show. It was only the press that, that completely took it on onto a, a different level. For no apparent reason, because, you know, there was no reason. You know, the old name Chase as being as being, you know, a cheat. But who was Skippy then? Well, Skippy wasn't Matthew's either, but Skippy was also in the program. But why make a big deal about the second dog when there was actually a third dog in there in the whole picture? I still, to be honest, don't understand it. I don't understand it. I don't understand it because the magician wasn't doing real magic. I mean, everything's entertainment. I mean, it's... it's Of course, and his props aren't real and and the doubles aren't real, you know. You know, it's about television. To me, it was about making television. And there was no attempt to conceal. It's just very peculiar, isn't it? And, And... and like many people say to me, well, you know, I never go onto the film set with a dog that hasn't got a lookalike because not every dog can do every action. Well, yeah. not every dog is allowed to work a lot of hours. So if a dog's been on set two or three hours and it's tiring and it needs a break, yeah. it's handy to have a double. Yeah. So for me, dead, dead normal that, you know, my dog after Matisse, and he was born before the show, before the VGC, had already called my new pup Ditto for that same reason. Yeah. Because he's just got to be like Matisse. And I was hoping in the film world that, uh, you know, Matisse is only seven, seven or eight year old. 
uh, anything he can't do so great anymore, any action shots, then I could use the double dog to for the distance that's exactly like him. Yeah. Um, and that's completely normal in the, in the film scenario, of course. Definitely. Um, so, so did did the PR people from the show, did they have any way of fighting this? Because they... They were very supportive to me. They were very supportive. I can't say that they, that they weren't. And they sent us somebody straight away because um, somebody living in my home, just in case the press were really, you know, annoying yeah. and maybe uh, not visible, um, they actually sent a representative from the show and they stayed in, in, in our uh, atelier here and, and lived here for a few days just to keep the press. And anybody came to the door alone, they took it all over for yeah. us, you know. They were very, very kind that way. Um, and they and the kind of took all the blows for us on the first day. I think they were completely shocked by the whole scenario as well, to be honest. I don't think anybody saw it coming, which, you know, what the press is made out of it. Have you ever considered joining the um, the group Hacked Off? Uh, the the because there's the number of celebrities that um, banded together when the tabloids got out of hand and started hacking people's phones. Because really, your story is a normal person who did nothing wrong, having their life turned upside down for. Their titillation, basically. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you 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 should have been the most joyful. I would have liked to have enjoyed it for a little longer, yes, yeah, than a few hours. Yeah. yeah. But I think maybe you should you should. Uh, yeah, it's a good excuse to get in touch with Hugh Grant. Um, anyway, yeah. but um, just sort of um, because really this is what was wrong with the media. Um, I don't know how you would stand contractually wise and, and certainly oh, yeah. with the show that you're, that you're tied up with uh, with all sorts of things to protect the company as well, of course. Um, I, I I wouldn't want to make waves, to be honest. I'm not no. that kind of person. We, and, it's just lucky you're strong, though, because imagine oh, if it absolutely. was somebody who was was, you know, on the edge. And this would have really, I mean, it's more than some people could have bared. I mean, it would have pushed someone over the edge, I'm sure. And and these are, you know, it's a show where it does catapult people from their normal life. From being normal people to being, yeah. 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 And like you say, I was, you know, my work and working in film has been kind of a buffer for that. I wasn't shocked. It wasn't all, I wasn't all wide eyed and. No. In my stride, luckily I have that background, but not everybody has got that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, they could have they could have really done terrible damage to somebody who was vulnerable, and and that's yeah. that's the it, it it just seems like the story is more important than anything, and and it wasn't a story, but it was a headline, no. it was a pun, no. wasn't it? Because they could do, and, and I was so I was kind of just disappointed in the press. You know, I was I was pissed off at my mother because she's read the Daily Mail for twenty years, <laughs> and I said, "You cancel that straight away." <laughs> I was completely disappointed in the press because I always, you know, you always hear, oh, "Don't, don't, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't believe what you read in the press." Yeah, um, but of course, you presume 
that the cats are at some stage going to at least cover the basic story and get out what you want, get yeah. out what you want to talk about. And you're not, yeah, something like that you can never anticipate. Something yeah. like that I would never anticipate. Giving an interview and just being yourself and, and kind of enjoying that moment, going on breakfast TV, being tired, just completely knackered but elated. And one simple little interview and your next interview, an hour later, you're already confronted with a, with a whole lot of press, throwing accusations at you. And I was like, whoa, what is this? Yeah. You know, where did this come from? Um, had I not been stronger part, you know, in character, I would have been out of the room in tears by then. Yeah. And yeah. I have a, I had a very good support system. You know, I had people from the show around me. I had my own, my own uh, assistant with me. So luckily I had a buffer um, yeah. at that time. But afterwards getting back to normal life. So, you know, the only thing I would have, the only thing I regret is it's, Save, it stopped me from achieving the one thing I did want to do was I wanted to get my dogs involved in a, in a TV series. Uh, the offers don't come in when you're big negative press like that. You don't get offers like that when you've been that negative in the press. Mm. You don't want to, to hire anybody that's, you know, a scoundrel or a cheat. Mm. And, and simply stuff that, that's made up. And that's the unfortunate thing. Like I say, I can shake it off because number one, the check cleared. You know, I got paid. Yeah. So that was already a bonus. Yeah. Um, and like I say, I had, I was living a good life before I did BGP. So I wasn't disappointed yeah. to come back to doing my own thing and making my own choices, what I do. Um, you know, if I, uh, professionally um it, it's just the downside of i wouldn't have wanted to travel all around england uh, or anywhere um and hauling my dogs from show to show because i think it's nice to do now and again and deliver pension but it's quite a hard slog for your for your dogs and uh, you know i'm not i'm not a circus act at the end of the day um, mm. so i would have liked to have done some nice gigs um but the one, the only thing that I really regret is not getting my Wolf series. You know, yeah. I, I I worked with the dog that used to be Eric on the Wolf series. I've worked with that dog until it got a very old dog. She was actually called Judy, and she was in a series when I was a child or younger. She was in a series on BBC TV, um, and uh, she this little boy changed into a dog. You know, and just. This was a series that was on every week, and it was just a lovely kids' TV yeah. series. And I could have just imagined Matthew having skills, Matthew and my other dog being able to co have other parts in it. Yeah. And and you know making a fabulous uh, kids' series, and having all the all the, the dogs that were suitable to make these fantastic little stories that, that kids would love. You know. Kind of the new Lassie series, you know, but then with modern day dogs and dogs that people can relate to. Yeah. So that's the only thing, really. Have if you say, have I got regrets? Not at all. I'll do it again tomorrow. Um, but that's the only thing that could have come out of it that I would love to have come out of it that didn't because of the press, unfortunately.
but you never know it might still happen because it, it's a you know it, it is a brilliant the problem is it, of course the time is gone with my teeth then you know he's an old dog so you know that story is an old one you've got to do it all over again with a new one or, or one of the old ones but, ha- but you you do have a lot of talented dogs, don't you? Yes, so I do. Yes, I what, do. Who have you got at the moment? Tell me, tell me your current. Uh, how many? How um, many dogs have you got at the moment? Twelve. Twelve. That's quite a lot. Uh, a lot of old dogs, like I say, uh, I think about those two allergies and so we're about fourteen now. Um, we we I do like to rescue now and again, of course, Skippy with the three legs. The rescue dog. Um, I always will have German Shepherds and Border Collies because that's certainly for the sport and, and you know, my pleasure. I love my Shepherds. Yes. Um, I will never be without a, a brown and white Border Collie. I've had them 25 years and I will have them till I can't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a fetish for Shelties. I've no idea why. I bought <laughs> one Shelties for the sport. And it was completely crippled. It had such bad uh, hip dysplasia and elbow dysplasia. It cost me about five grand in the first year to have it operated and everything, so it could walk pain free for the rest of its life. It's now 11 years old, never done a day's work in its life, and it's completely with me. It's my constant shadow. Um, so I have quite a few shelters, but mostly rescues, one with a heart defect. Um, and Something actually happened to me three weeks ago, by the way. I was actually, because everybody in your circle of friends, because you're doggy and you've been in dogs for a long time, everybody in your circle of friends contacts you when they've got a problem or a problem with the dog, or they want the dog, or they want to get rid of the dog. You think, well, Jules will know somebody. So my sister-in-law has been promising herself for a long time when she stops and does less work, she wants a dog. So I was given, because I'm the family dog trainer, and <laughs> if she gets the wrong one, it's only going to fall on me anyway, because then I have to train it anyway. So I thought, she just wants a little dog. So I started booking out dealers looking for a small dog suitable for my sister-in-law. Just a little crossbreed, a little rescue, wants to do some good and rescue something out of the shelter. I got her a perfect dog. Problem is, I can't come anywhere near those places. Because at the same time, I always see that little sad thing in the background. And I say, what's that? And that's fatal. Yes. So three weeks ago, my sister-in-law got a lovely, fabulous little dog. She was very, very happy with it. And I came home with a blind and deaf kind of crossbreed. And we kind of felt it was a bit of a message from Skippy because we lost Skippy last year. And um, the same lady that um, uh, that I got Skippy off, you know, I saw this dog there and thought, well, who is going to take that on? It's a little poly mix. And it sees very, very uh, a small amount out of one eye. Other eyes use, but it doesn't hear anything, so you've got to work with signals. You know, to give it any kind of quality of life, who's going to take that on? It's going to end up getting So she came home with us. <laughs> and it's the naughtiest thing I've ever had. Oh. And it's uh, fallen completely in love with everybody here and everybody thinks it's wonderful. And it's oh. absolutely, uh, uh, you know, high maintenance with its uh, 
handicapped, but uh, you know, who knows? The next Skippy. Skippy never had to work more than 10 minutes in his whole life, and he did all right. <laughs> so, yes, I have, uh, I have, we've kind of got uh, the, the, the old and the disabled uh, section, and then we've got the proper work, though. So, anything else in between. Mm-hmm. But like I say, there's the beauty of working from home. I'm always home with the dogs around you. Um, so it's a bonus, an extra one now and then. I've been saying all year, no more dogs. We've got so many that are getting old and we're going to lose so many dogs in the next couple of years. And uh, I really wanted to go down a bit in numbers. But uh, mm. no, yeah. there's always room for an extra little one. Oh. Did I see you had a horse as well at some stage? I actually trained the first guide mini horse. <laughs> in Just in between what I was doing with everything else. Um, and certainly after the BGT thing, um, uh, then I lost Chase. Um, and that was quite a blow because he had a heart tumor I didn't know about. I was filming in Poland and I was using my piece and Ditto in this film. And I decided that, to be honest, normally my piece and Chase would have gone on a film shoot. But Ditto was a young dog, that's my piece's understudy. <coughs> and I thought, uh, it's in Warsaw, the flight's not long, it's only an hour on the plane. It'd be a good experience for the young dog working along my, alongside my feet. Mm-hmm. And Chase uh, had just done an international uh, show and won it, the uh, Open European Championship in, in, in the Hillworks Music. So mm-hmm. we've been up, you know, up to school to then. I thought, I'm leaving home for the rest. You won't like it being left behind. Certainly not as Dicko going in place. So I took my teeth and ditto to Warsaw and I wasn't there three days before my chase collapsed unexpectedly at home and we had a week to get used to the news that he had a heart tumour, he was only nine years old, eh? mm. that he had a heart tumour and it really was delusion, there was nothing that we could do operable wise or anything. So when I came home from Warsaw, I spent literally 48 hours tied to the dog and that, to be honest, gave me a real life dip, not like the BBT dip, a roller coaster of all that crap. That was a bring it on home, lost a dog that you've got, you know, such a relationship with. My people chase were, you know, we've been everywhere for 10 years together and, and done everything. We lived out of each other's pockets and, and lived and breathed the same air. And, uh, you know, chase was a real mummy's boy. So I took a dip in that and I didn't want to do dog dance anymore, although I had Ditto, uh, doing very well, and um, Matisse was, uh, of course, in his high class and whatever. Just, I didn't feel like it anymore. The bug had gone out of it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd always said, if I stopped with dogs, because I came from horses at first, right? Every dog trainer has a history of what he started with something else. Um, I've always had a fascination for horse training too. And I, I've always promised, when I retire and I don't train guide dogs anymore, I would love to be able to train a guide horse. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it in America, and we do little mini ponies and mini horses. I'd love to have a go of it. Um, and it was my wife, actually, when I was in this period where I was in a bit of a dip. And yeah. she said, why don't you, instead of cutting that off, you know, you're doing guide dogs now, it's your hobby's going to be the one that drops off. Um, and you're going to take a couple of years out for a hobby. Why don't we push that dream up 
and get yourself a little mini horse and train it to be a guide horse. So it was her fault I did that. <laughs> um, so yes, we, tra- we trained Dinky up to be, and he was actually recognised as the first working guide horse in, in Belgium. For a client that used to have a guide dog for me, worked 15 years. Oh, she, she lost it at 15 years. Oh. And she saw me on TV with uh, the horse training in the supermarket, recognised my voice because obviously she's a blind, a blind client, recognised my voice and told me we hadn't spoken to each other for 10 years. Oh. And she said, uh, do you remember Zayna? I said, yeah, Golden Retriever went to Brooklyn. Yeah, that was my dog. Do you remember me? It's Monique. And she said, I've just heard your voice on the TV and I know that horse is for me. <laughs> So, but to be honest, I wanted to teach my horse the skills of the guide work because I quite fancied using it as a demo. Yes. Because when you go to events, you don't like people to walk with your um, guide dogs in Spain because you bugger them up. Yeah. And you don't want people, you know, all day at an event hanging on the guide dog's harness and we don't know what to do and they're putting the blindfold on. It's very... It's very hard on the dog if the dog's yes. not really stable. To be honest, we tend to use dogs that have retired early for one reason or another that mm. can do good sound basic course. We use them as a bit of a demo dog. Then mm. I thought, of course, you've got 20 years use on that. Yes. And true. also, it's much more stable than a dog in these kind of show or events, mm. uh, you know, places um, and atmospheres. Mm-hmm. So that was where the horse came from. So I, I ended up promising it to the client, but uh, it was supposed to be tra- staying here with my tricks on. <laughs> oh, well, maybe yeah. maybe more horses in the future. I, I don't know. It's one of those things. You've got to have enough hours in the day as well. That's true. That's true. But you, you mentioned TV work. What um, I've seen your dogs in, um, I think it was a, a beer commercial that was a really... Oh, yeah. Yeah, what what what's the most? What would people have seen your dogs in? Uh, what, what, give us a clue on some of the things that you you. Uh, of course, most of the things that I, that I do are, are shot here in Europe. So uh, we've done a lot of uh, we've done sell our work campaigns three years running. I actually, and even if my dogs aren't on screen, I actually have the visa dog in training three or four times a year that does the visa promotions every year. I train a lot of the cats for the for the Shiba. And uh, for the Shiba commercial and the and the white uh, gourmet cats. Wow! Um, and I also uh, trained the Westies for the Shiba commercial. Gosh! Um, so he he well, there's four Westies that that take part in the commercials, and they all kind of reside uh, now and again with me. He comes two or three months at a time. At one stage, a couple of years ago. Um, academic animals, they're, they're rested for the season commercials, they're all getting a bit older. And when you're taking a, a when they're shooting a close-up feeding shot, when you mm. see everything, the, the quality of filming now is, is tremendous. Yes. So yes. you see if the dog's missing a tooth or you're getting mm. a little bit of old, in, you know, looking old in the eye. Then they want to use a younger, vigorous dog. So they were noticing they needed another backup for the Westies, but the Westies are quite highly trained. You know, they retrieve really good and they can be directed at distance and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, so um, 
the ASME will use Army of Puppy and train up with all it needs to do to be arrested for citizen medical. Yeah. So, so all the, yeah, like I say, they've all, they've all been here at one point or another. Um, and, and I have all the current ones regularly. I have another one coming back in September where they're into training and they're not busy. Um, so it's not just my own dog to do for that. But now and again, you just get a fantastic commercial. We did the nicest one of them for ages was a granola cookie commercial, just because it's a really fun commercial where the dog uh, is kind of acting like the handler and the handler is acting like the dog on an agility course. Oh wow! And okay, it, was, it was it was shot. I have to send you the link for dogs today. It's a really the doggy people. It's brilliant. And it was made in Paris, and we were two days there filming it. But it, yeah, some of them, you've just got a nice memory filming it. Not not everything you do for the film, sometimes you're away a long time, and you're four days working on the film shoot, and then you see a 20-second clip for an advert, and you think, I spent all week <laughs> doing that, you know. And television is sometimes disappointing in that way. Not every film anymore is just written around the animal like it used to be. No, no. Things are done on computers. And, uh, you know, I'm very lucky that, uh, that, that there's still a lot of work going on for, for film dogs, really, or talented dogs. Because almost everything can be done with the computer nowadays. Was it your, you, one of your dogs that did the commercial that was for not leaving dogs in hot cars? There was. Yeah. Yeah, that was so. That was also my piece. That was yeah. that was lovely, and we we were shot in Spain, and we had to put big lights up to make it look like a hot day because it's like six o'clock in the morning, and uh, uh, it was it was actually an insurance campaign for mm. a Danish firm, and we were shooting in Spain, and we had French actors. And it was completely. It was like United Nations on the set, you know, people from everywhere, and it didn't really make sense. But when I actually saw the commercial, it's made a lovely commercial, and it's been used for years. Yeah. And the actual campaign was in um, when when people had problems, if they saw a dog in a car, they were frightened to break a window. Yes. And certainly in Europe, people are people want to act, but they don't. They don't do any damage, yeah, you know, because you, they'll be scared to break the windows. Yeah. yeah, or people will call the police and it'll be them that are at fault. Yeah. So this insurance firm made this advert to say that if you see a dog in need, we will cover the damage. Oh, brilliant, yeah. So I, it was kind of a really a, a nice uplifting commercial. But like I say, it's been tagged every year that the, the weather gets hot yeah. just because it's a nice commercial, although it's for another country. It's just a nice commercial about a reminder for people not to leave dogs in hot cars, and it's so easy to do it. But it happens yeah, every year. Proper dog acting going on in there, though, because it, it really Matisse was very convincing, um, and and I think that's so hard to to actually. He went through. He, he actually went through a whole bucket of um, egg whites. I whipped up egg whites for the frost. Like he'd been breathing difficulty and he was making bubbles. Mm. And every time, by the time I got him settled and we placed all the glass in where he wanted it to be, you know, for the shot, by the time he zoomed in on the dog, his whole face was clean again. This little bubble cleaned it all off because he liked <laughs> <laughs> So we kept putting the 
dog in the shot, getting the actresses right. And then I was saying at the last minute, I'm going to move in at the last minute, put all the egg white around his mouth and move out. <laughs> so they, they had people in the props whipping up egg white. Go oh get me some more eggs, you know. <laughs> I think I saw that commercial before we actually spoke. I, I think that because well, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? That commercial. Yeah, and I think um, I think I think you wanted to use the link or something on your. Would that be on your Facebook or something, or in the magazine even? It, I think it was in the magazine because we were we we would around that time. I think we were launching "Don't Cook Your Dog" as True. a campaign. Yeah. And your yeah. this commercial was and just. And then I mentioned I'd just coincidentally done a nice, a nice, although it was doing at the country, it's a really nice. Um, well, I think every... did, you, did you not try and get permission to use yes. that in your campaign? Did you not? We like did. That? I think we we in the end, I think we just kept showing links to it. Um, yeah. I, I don't. I think we ran out of steam on it really because it was one of those yeah. things. Where, um, it got bigger and bigger and bigger that campaign where you, all the charities were helping and um, it was one of those things where I really expected one of the charities to take the campaign on I didn't expect it yeah. to be my campaign and it right. grew out of all proportion and in the end we gifted it back to uh, the kennel club and the kennel club oh, have, yeah. have now own that campaign but um right. I think there'd been two really horrific deaths um, of police dogs. And um, that was the sort of thing that people were still thinking it was okay just to nip into the shops for a couple of minutes. And they didn't realise how quickly things heated up. To Um, be honest, while children still die in hot cars. That's right. Yeah. Where are we going with dogs? You know, if people can think, well, they're sleeping, I won't be a minute. It's a shame. You don't want, you know, the, the kids been crotchety all morning. They finally fall and sleep in the car. I'll just nip in and get a couple of things because if you wake them up, you take them in, they're crying again. So you understand where all that's coming from. Yeah, it's, it, it's easily done. It's, easily it is, done it. It, it's one of those things that, um, yeah, especially if people are a bit tired as well because you, you make yeah. mistakes. And, um, and multitasking and doing too much and working, you know. It, we've been a long way from a situation where the wife stayed at home and the husband went out working. Um, everybody needs to work nowadays to maintain any kind of income. And people have got to multitask and mothers have got to multitask and combine kids with work and bring them to daycare. And it's happened here also. It was only last year where somebody dropped their child at school, their husband at his work, drove to her work, parked the car in the car park, went to work and had forgotten all about the child that was asleep that should have been dropped at the crash on the way in and they found it dead in the afternoon because it was in a hot car all day. Mm. And, I mean, how do you go on after that? After something like that? Like I say, if it still happens with children just because people are busy with 101 things at once. It is. It is. Uh, life gets more and more complex, especially in uh, now we've got a pandemic to worry about how, how has it affected you have you because uh, 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 i suppose most competitions off at the moment have you been uh, doing almost every competition almost every competition and uh, a lot of filming i've done no filming really to speak of this year at all everything that was planned at the beginning of the year uh, got pushed up to 21 at least um of course traveling with the lockdown was a problem although 
I live in living in Belgium or working in Holland, I still can go to clients or go, you know, if I need to swap dogs or take a dog in or go collecting with a dog, I can have permission to do that. Um, but uh, traveling, traveling on a plane or a boat, uh, you know, it's not a good enough excuse and what I wanted to do in a pandemic to take a dog onto a film set, you know. Um, I quite understand that I wouldn't want to have traveled in that, in that period either. Um, but it, 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 it didn't really affect me greatly in the first week, but, um, I was missing some skills. I train also assistance dogs for people in a wheelchair, not only blind people, but just people physically impaired or blind people that are physically impaired, dual dogs. Um, but they have to work quite a lot in supermarkets. Um, kind of backgrounds, and obviously it's not appreciated to, to go in in these extreme times to go in and train in the store with your dog. Um, they want you to pay with your card so that you're not passing any money. They don't want you to come with your golden retriever up to the checkout, and your golden retriever to bring your purse to the checkout, jump up at the till, and drop it onto the lap of the you know, that can't happen anymore. Mm. But my golden retriever can't put that card sideways against the machine either <laughs> to pay. <laughs> you know, they might be clever, but they ain't that clever. By the time they've had it three times in the mouth, they've either swallowed it or it's crossed in half. So I found some, some things really difficult while I've had to say it. You know, some of that is going to have to be done when they with the client. Yeah. Some of the final touches, we can do a lot of basic, but it was normal for me to be able to walk into every store. I could, uh, I could sneakily pass a shelf and put something and article out of my own pocket on the shelf and then walk back down the same aisle and ask it to find that thing. So it's not touching another product. I can put my own product there. Um, but like I say, you've only got so many, so many minutes in the store. You're only allowed half an hour shopping. It's got to be for necessity. Even now we've got our second lockdown now a bit. Oh, you mean another lockdown? Oh, we're having another uh, lockdown at the moment. We've gone down to having 15 people in our in our bubble. Every individual was allowed 15 contacts at one point when they lessened things again. And now they've reduced it drastically to a whole family unit is alone, only allowed five steady people, five steady contacts. Mm. So if my daughter's got a boyfriend, Hmm. And I've got a colleague, you know, you've, when you've all got one person, that's you, and you're not allowed to see anybody outside that bubble. And those people that you're, they're in your bubble, so they have to count you in their bubble. So they've, they've really dropped, you know, dropped yeah. the measures now because Antwerp is full again, even oh, as yeah. again to us. Uh, it's all, it's all built. The hospital numbers aren't building up yet. Mm. But of course, everybody that's been away on holiday are reinfecting everybody. And as soon as they started lessening the laws, it's just a shame for so many people that really stuck to the, you know, to the letter. They did everything properly. And there's only a small category of people that, you know, that just flout that and say, well, I'm, well, I'm not, I don't have to social distance and I don't have to do this. And, and those are the people that are bringing it home to grandparents and, and other people mm-hmm. and, and infecting others, unfortunately. So they've had no choice but to take some of the, some of the, 
restrictions that they've loosened, they've now pulled it all back. Uh, as from today, um, the bubble of 15 has now gone down to five. There's no world traveling unless you have to do. We haven't necessarily closed the borders, um, but you'd have to have a down the freezer going over the border. You know, yeah. if you don't get a loaf of bread over the border, it's not uh, you know, feasible anymore. So I find, I find training my work and my work still goes on. It's very difficult to teach your dog social distancing because a guide dog is used to I take it to a crowded place normally yeah. to teach it to go with the flow of people traffic to not get panicking when we're on a market where there's legs and people and fans and, and kids and everything and they've got to kind of filter through all that and keep the person safe that's attached to them so you teach them people skills, people trafficking but I can't do that with the social distancing. No. And again, I wouldn't want to because you don't want to get close to anybody. But when a young dog is in training, quite often purposely bump somebody on the shoulder because the dog feels that if you the jolt in the harness and you think, ow, and the dog can oh, I was too close. And he learns from it. So even those simple skills you can't really practice, you know, whilst the pandemic pandemic going on. Um, so it is, you've got to, you know, as a trainer, I see that as a, you know, the challenge because you have to find out other ways of, of putting those skills into your dogs and putting those responsibilities into your dogs. And at the end of the day, if you can't make guide dogs in this period, then you make assistance dogs because if you can't do enough work on the street, you can do enough work in the home and you can adapt the skills so there's always, there's always another solution. There's always somebody helps at the end of the day. Gosh. But it's all a bit frightening. It's all it's all starting up again, I feel. I don't know the houses in England now. Well, I think we've we've just um it everyone was being quite well behaved and then um then we got good weather and then we I think it seems to be going around the world that you get a bit of good weather and then you get a load of people out protesting about things and and then um people would go on holiday. And it just all yeah. goes out the out the window, and it's just like people have, you know. I can't I was, uh, imagine. I can't imagine why you would want to go on. Why you can't miss a holiday for a year? Yeah, I, 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 I and it, it's been um, a lot of people have been caught out. They all went to Spain, and now they've they can't. They've got to be quarantined for two weeks when they get back. And um, I think yeah. they're gonna. Really, I, I, I just think that it would probably have been easier to just to say no, only essential travel um, for right. a bit longer. I can't understand why they loosened it so quickly, to be honest, because no. Spain was still a hotbed for the virus. They haven't yeah. solved it in their own country. So why, why, even if they opened the borders, you've got to remember they're all reliable. They're all reliant on the tourist trade. All these yes. countries are reliant on the tourist trade. So they don't want a complete lockdown, you know, and, and like that, like here, the restaurants and things have all opened like a month ago. And now, now they're all getting cancellations because anything that was planned, any party above five can't go yeah. on anymore. No, we'll probably get in the same situation. I, I was yeah. in... Um, the only st- difference is in England, they don't give out spot fines. They don't find people like they do here. If I'm walking down my street without a mask on, I get an on-the-spot 150 
really? will find. If I go into the store without a mask and I am served, I get a spot fine for 250 euros, but the person serving me in the shop is fined 800 euros. Wow. Well, that would certainly make people ah, uh, behave. In England, yes. sure, yeah. But the problem is you've got to manage, haven't you? Yeah. I, we're just not very organised. But I think the worrying thing is, um, like I was in Woking for the first time today, which is our nearest big town. Uh, is it a city? I don't know. But it's, it's the, you know, the booming place. And there were lots and lots and lots of people, but all of the restaurants were shut. And, though, and apparently they're shut for good. They've gone, so they're not coming back. So I I think that the uh, government's really sort of nervous that the economy is not going to recover from this. And no, I don't feel either. And yeah. I think it's, it's very difficult because when it first happened, they were supported and they were given, uh, you know, they were certainly covered for some of the set costs, you know, the, the rent or the hire or whatever, or the maintenance here also. They were given a basic, if they had to close, they were given um, a basic income to cover some of, the, some of the costs that they would have, whether they were open or not. And that went on. Of course, now they've said you can open. And that they lose that. They don't get that anymore. Yes. They don't get any supplements anymore. But now they've made the restrictions stronger again. So if anybody had booked a restaurant table for 10, they've now had to cancel it because, you know, people they're allowed to come to together in a group of 10. So yeah. these restaurants and bistros or any kind of uh, a place like that um, is now getting constantly, yeah, reservations that, that get cancelled, yeah. people aren't coming. They're still allowed to open, but there's no business. Yeah. But they've also got no, they've got no assistance, they've got no support anymore. No. So now they've They've got the same cost without help. Only people aren't coming and dining and having parties. And at first they said you were allowed events, and now they've pulled that back as well. Mm-hmm. And said you're allowed to get married with only 25 people, social distancing from each other. Well, why wouldn't you just put it off for a year and wait for things to steady yeah. out? You know? But people still want to get married in this year, and they still want to have parties, and they still want to have communions. And I can't understand why it's so urgent this year, but why you can't put the general health situation first. Let's all be calm and put things on hold for one simple year until we get a vaccine. Yeah. Well, hopefully we get the vaccine, but um, it's it's nothing certain, is it? That's the thing. I think we're in unprecedented times, and um, it's it's really. Well, I, I quite liked the original first lockdown where you started to value the small things, being safe. Yes, and you got, you were, you were, it was a big real reality check from how you got so involved in life that you didn't take the small things for granted anymore. Yes. And you even appreciated your family and friends and, and yeah. the people around you and, and you know, your dogs. It became more important. Yeah, really. And the only thing that I quite was, just, I was at the same frame of mind in the first few months because it's done everybody good. We realised that it was good in people. People were actually 
you know, being heroes, real day yes. heroes, and helping the community. Yeah, and it was all exactly. wonderful. It was mm. wonderful and clapping nurses and the rest of it. I was a bit scared that it was going to have a big impact on the animal situation because people got scared with the two cat stories. Oh yeah, of cats mm-hmm. being able, cats and dogs being able to transmit it. Yeah, and somebody had made the point to me from uh, well, if a cardboard box is live for five days, if somebody's touched it and it's carrying COVID, if they put that box down, it's going to be another five days before it's safe for you to touch it because you couldn't. So the question was to me, if somebody with COVID-19 strokes the dog, loves the dog, kisses the dog, okay? they've had the face on the dog and they've had you know, particles of spit on the dog or anything on the hand, and the dog then comes back to me and I'm petting the dog, can the dog, the dog can carry it just like a box? Yeah, it's it a sounds, Yeah. It sounds reasonable, but then you start to worry about how many idiots will panic and get rid of the dog. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the shelters were inundated with dumped pets in the first few mm-hmm. months. Because, all because we had a cat, I don't think you will have covered it as well, but that, um, that there was a cat scare that, yeah. that a cat was been proven to be having COVID. And then there was a second one. The cat was actually tested for COVID-19 and came up positive. So I thought if we do that with a the dog, then we're really in trouble because uh, yeah. people, are start, people are just frightened, aren't they? People are just frightened. Yeah. But I think now they've they've, they've stopped being frightened. Um, and Almost too much. Yeah. yeah. On the other way. They're now big thinking it's, um, you know, it's it's just been an exaggeration. And, and that's the problem is that it was eroded, that natural caution. And now yeah. people are taking risk. And... And it's hard to imagine that they've forgotten all those horrible images on the news oh. of, of, of the wards and people yeah. lying on the stomachs in intensive care and people that have lost loved ones because yeah. how many thousands of people have died to it. Yeah. You would think it would be hard to forget, really, wouldn't you? But people, I don't know, they move on, don't they? And that's the yeah. thing. They think it won't be them. It's it's um it's always going to be someone else. Unfortunately, uh, I don't know how um how you, it it is like herding cats, isn't it? Really trying. I, yeah. I I do I do worry that um the politicians they're really not they're not experts in um, control and and manipulating people's behavior. I mean, we need a few dog trainers at the helm. I think to to, to reward people for the good behaviour and, um, you know, because at the moment we, we haven't got, we, we, we're we not telling people off when they're doing it wrong, when there's hardly yeah. anyone ever getting into trouble. But equally, um, there's no reward for, for the good um, apart from survival. When there are punishments, you seem like they're punishing the people that have been trying the hardest. Yeah. Because the ones that are... You know, screwing it up for everybody aren't tackled, are they? No, no. You know, like my parents that haven't been out of the house since the beginning of, of March, you know, in their 80s, and my brother bringing the, do- the, the, the groceries to the doorstep, you know, yeah. they're wondering if they'll ever see the light of day again, you know, the yeah. second and the third and the third floor. I mean, you think, well, 
what's it all been for if it's never going to be safe for them to, to you know, make sure mm. Or, yeah. you know. I mean, it's a horrible thought that forever we will be socially distancing and wearing masks Um, because that that is a possible reality that we we never do move on from this because... And and also, you know, I think the the one thing that scared me the most at that time, uh, my daughter was away at a boyfriend, so she's, you know, a town further, had to make a decision that she come home. Mm-hmm. How long is lockdown going to be for? Uh, or is she going to stay at the boyfriend? And in that way, she's locked down there and can't get back home. We've got to make decisions. But also my parents, uh, I thought, well, if one of them gets sick and has to go to hospital, not only can you not visit them, but imagine if some of the worst happens and they died, I can't even go home for a funeral. I can't visit them, you know. Mm. It was all it was all very uh, scary from from me being you know further away of course but even the people that were close by you couldn't visit with you you, mm. you weren't accepted on many many people have died lonely and scared in the hospital ward yeah. purely because they're not allowed to be visited you know thank God for Skype but is that is that enough at that moment yeah. you know I wouldn't want to say goodbye to my to my mother watching her being uh, intubated on Skype. No, no, it's... it's, it's not my idea of it, isn't it? No. Um, no. So, no, it is, it is very scary, but I think we're going to have to just get tough and sort it out until there is some other options. But I think it's going to become a daily life to be wearing a mask everywhere you go. I think you have to do to, be, to protect yourself. I think you have to come... From yourself nowadays, from I, I've noticed so many people that don't. You do your best to social distance, and they don't respect it. You yeah. stood in the store, and somebody brushes past you, and you say, "Excuse me, you know, there's room, you know. Why, why is that necessary that you can so close to walk on the other side of the aisle?" Then, mm-hmm. you know, and and people are just now really ready for a, a, a fight. It's a bit of Darwin at work, isn't it? That people are seeing that it's uh, oppressive being told to wear yeah. a mask. I mean, it's, it's, oh dear. I just, I think we're more used to it here. I think that people in England and being English myself, of course, I think the mentality, I think if your government tells everybody or told everybody in the beginning, you're going to do this, everybody would have gone up in, in, and created a thing and said, no way, <laughs> because you've always been brought up to be able to be able to speak your mind and, yeah. and make your own choices. You are, we're not a culture to be told what to do. Mm. And that's what I swear I see a difference here in Europe. Mm. We're told to wear a mask and we say, for how long? Yes. <laughs> yeah. For yeah. how long? Well, it, it, it's. Um, I think we'll have to try and make uh, make ourselves a little bit more capable of surviving and um, being individual in our support of the mask. Because uh, I must admit, I wore a mask today in in Woking, and I I I, um, I was told when I was I, I went I went into the hairdressers for the first time for a hundred years, no, for a very long time, and they thought it was very funny that I cut my own hair, and um, they said I didn't do too bad a job, but. 
um, I wore a mask. And they said, you don't have to wear a mask in here. I said, well, well why? Because if I, if I was coming into a shop to buy something, I'd have to wear a mask. And I'm going to be in here a lot longer. And they said, and no. And working quite close to you. Yeah, but they, they have to wear a visor. But they don't have to insist that the people there, because that's not going to work for very long, is it? Yeah, somebody's going to come in with, yeah. and they're all going to catch it, and then they're yeah. going to be shot. And they only have to sneeze, mm. and the particles over the whole air. So even the visor isn't helping them. Is no. no, the visor just just traps it in there. So exactly. um, And they were saying, well, because of COVID, they're not allowed to make you a drink anymore. And I was going, well, that's a bit odd, isn't it? Because if you go to a pub, they're allowed to give you a drink. But yeah. in a hairdresser's, which is already terribly intimate, they can't yeah. bring you a glass of water. It no, just seems exactly. that they haven't thought this through. But no. I do you know, think they're not prepared for these things. No. I mean, that's the problem, is that it was difficult enough running a country, never mind dealing with a pandemic. And some some nations have done it better than others. And um, that at some point, if 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 the media in the good old days, the way it used to be, and you know the, the people who did uh, exposed Watergate and various other things, if they actually you know all did their homework and and will actually properly report how we all did um, in the future. Um, It'd be interesting to find out whether or not we could have done this any better. But uh, yeah. I just worry whether or not we'll ever have an investigative media anymore because it doesn't seem, well, nobody's buying newspapers. Um, so yeah, where, where are we going to get these, the, the committed people that actually worked on a real story and then told it rather than just write headlines to sell papers? Because uh, Exactly. Um, Oh, I, I think oh, we we've broken the record again here. I, I, we, we're on uh, two two and a, two hours twenty minutes. That's gone in a oh. blink of the eye. As long as I don't care about the Daily Mail, but as long as that still comes in the post, I'm oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that was a miss. I that that was uh, how many months did you not send it out? There was a, a gap. I think we put March out really late, right? And then um, June out and yeah. July has been a bit late, and we're working yeah. on August now. So wow. we're, we're, we we will put an August out soon. I I think we should just abandon the months and just put them out because whenever you you can. don't know what day it is these no, exactly. days. No, exactly. What does it matter? Dates are just <laughs> some sort of construct. But um, purposely, I purposely said it came today, and uh, and I've missed it like mad because. Then you've got time to read, and there's nothing to bloody read. Um, and uh, and uh, and we've just given 36 degrees on Friday, and I said Friday, I'm gonna have two hours in my shady chair, and I'm going to read. Oh, bless you, Jules. Is it, is is it true that when you were a kid, you used to read dogs today? Or, or I think you... Bernard was the first dog on your front cover. Oh. And I think we tried to find a copy at the time when we first spoke a few years ago. And I have, I'm sure my mother will probably even have a copy in a drawer somewhere. But my dog was one of the first cover stars from the first magazine. And she was, I had a big St. Bernard and I used to, when I used to go out for a hat with a horse, um, I used to put her in the stable. And when I came back, she cleaned the whole bloody stable out. 
and she was she was hanging on this door, on this stable door, with completely green chocks. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and you put it on the front cover. I think in a way, I mean, what was when the when was the first issue? I would have been. I'm trying to work this out because I remember a blue background with a St Bernard. But it wasn't the first edition because we were. It won't have been the first one, but it will have been one of the first. It will have been it, very it, early. It, early it, was, it was quite early on in the nice glossy covers because um, we, we used to be printed on terrible paper. Um, but did it have a little boy with it? Um, was there a hug going on? I, 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 I no. might be mixing it up. No. I, I'm going to have to get my back issues out and go through it. And let me think about, I think you've looked for it before and you were missing it too because it was a very early one. Because we must be talking, I'm now 54. Uh, I had the dog when I was like between 16 and 18. I would have started in the same You know, I think this might have been... So you're talking at least 35 years ago. This might be Dogs Monthly, which is our sister title. We own as well, but Dogs Monthly started earlier, um, yeah. and it was owned by a few different people. And we haven't got the full set um, because that's why that that will have been the loophole that we yeah. lost it. And yes, they were they were always glossy, but they they yeah. are the oldest magazine, and we we um, rescued that when that was going um, under. But we haven't actually put out a Dogs Monthly yet um, since no. COVID. But I've got a weird idea for. Dogs Monthly. That um, I, I've got this. I, I I worry about the good little breeders, the people that um, do everything right, try really hard, yeah. and are getting squeezed by every angle because um, they're being perceived as backyard breeders, where in fact the yeah. people who rear in the home are the elite. They're the artisans. Exactly. You don't want people rearing in sheds. So I want to start a group that that um, gives accolades to the the people who are doing it well and and makes them heroes. And wow. I was thinking Dog Monthly might be the 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 vehicle for bringing you know like we've done with beer that you have tiny micro breweries and you have the yeah. the the artistry is in doing it well and small and that you yeah. you have a network of good people all around the world who are rearing the puppies as healthily as possible but also doing house training early and socialization and making them, them a proper good great start yeah. yeah because yeah. just like you would for assistance dogs you you want them yeah. socialized health testing the parents doing all the background but then also putting in what you need to do before yeah. they're actually handed over yeah I because and maybe Dogs Monthly could be the umbrella be organization for the breeders because yeah um they've been made to feel dirty um that it's just been the way that it's been perceived by the public as you oh, we made it so that people who had um a litter from a dog they loved were seen to be irresponsible so we've yeah, left it to all the really yeah. irresponsible people to breed in sheds um. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it'd be nice to sort of um, uh, put some sort of organisation into into the acquisition of dogs, uh, so that the the small people who breed very rarely um, have the benefit of um, joining together, so that the public can find them. Because that's the problem: is if you don't breed very often, you don't have any marketing. You don't don't know, of course. People don't know you're there. 
But if you're part of something that says that celebrates how rarely you breed, then um, then you can you can match the public too. And I'd love to see lots of kind of making an, an elite club for people yeah. that that want to join, and then and then announce that to people so people would know how yeah. to find puppies. Probably make you come in contact with other things on internet. Basically. Yeah, and also make it so that. Um, People pass on skills uh, of yeah. how to rear the litters better and yeah. and, and share uh, advice and what went yeah. wrong even yeah. yeah and and make it so that there is like a union a club of um, of like minded people who are doing yeah. it for the right reasons because lots of breeds are going to die out because the tiny um, you know that you need people who are aware of that. The variety needs to be kept and the genes need to be looked after. We need logical, sensible people to make decisions that aren't necessarily um, all about winning. Um, you no. can win as well, but yeah. the majority of dogs end up as pets and, and yeah, we want them to be happy and healthy and, and people will pay the same money uh, that they're paying now for dogs bred in sheds because under lockdown prices went crazy here. I don't know if they oh, were. Yeah. yeah, and and people couldn't keep up to the demand and people gazumping each other and they really didn't care about provenance. They were just buying any dog um, and any and that price tag. If that was to be for somebody that only breeds once every three years. Maybe they can afford to take someone on to help with the socialization and the training if they charge yeah. more per puppy. And then yeah. the whole thing becomes a much more pleasant experience. You get higher retention. Well, well they can afford to use all those vacation time to do it. Yeah. To do it themselves and do it yeah. well. But then, you know, my, my mate in training, she takes a month off work if she has a litter once a year. Um, and she takes a hot because obviously the first two or three weeks aren't too yes, she sleeps on the couch with the bitch and the pups every night. But the minute we get active, she takes a whole year's uh, vacation to do the job properly and cause yeah. her heart and soul into the books before they disappear. And it, it'd be uh, nice to, you know, to, to make that something that is valued because the local yeah. authorities tend to just be interested in the buildings and people are getting bigger and bigger and bigger with bigger and bigger sheds. And we're hearing when they get stolen, these breeding dogs, there's no one there. These dogs are living lonely lives. And, and, you know, that's the next generation are are getting dogs that have been not socialized in any way whatsoever. And um, And we're still scared and, and and depressed. And and in fact, a lot of that down to the books as well, but, the main concern, of course, is the health. Eh? Yeah, and and like, I think uh, that's uh, like uh, the one I rescued. That's uh, it would be a factory dog. It would be a it would be from that kind of uh, background. It's obviously been two mills that shouldn't be bred together. Two mills. Oh yeah. How you make a lethal white? What you call it? Yeah. White. And that oh, she doesn't hear anything and she doesn't see anything. Oh, look. Oh, what there. a sweetie. Oh. You think you know. I mean, you can call her what you want because she doesn't. No, that's the thing. Oh, she's gorgeous. <laughs> the only puppy I've had um, that you don't have to creep around when she's asleep because you can slam the door, she doesn't hear it. So there are advantages to it. You don't have to creep around. Oh, look at you. Oh, she's so beautiful. 
she has a one eye that's, that's not useful at all. And she sees, <laughs> like, I have to have it tested yet, but she sees a little bit out of one eye. She can focus when she's so close up there. Oh. But she's such a funny little thing. And oh, she's she not very well built. She won't be a great healthy dog. But I just think, you know, um, you don't ever want to encourage things like that. Obviously, she was <laughs> intercepted from by the rescue. You don't want to encourage, I, would, I wouldn't want to pay a backyard breeder for that job. No. Um, she was rescued by the rescue, um, uh, and I took her from the rescue. Um, it's kind of, yeah, you don't want to encourage it, but she's here now. She's already been born, and she was at the rescue. And, and you, you can give her the best life, and that, that's, yeah. that's lovely. I mean, she's she's yeah, she's obviously thriving with you. That's lovely. To she's, see. Uh, she's in the last uh, three weeks. She's changed completely, completely oh, from this sad little, sad little um, handicapped dog to being the most ruthless little hooligan that we've got in the house. <laughs> Oh, Jules, it's been such a joy talking to you. And, and the time has just whizzed through. I, I, that, that is flown, yeah. I'd love flown. talking to you. And I'd, I'd really love to, you know, keep keep doing stuff because I, I think there's more to come from you, Jules. I think you, you've, you've um, I, I reckon I'll, I'll, I'm going to try and make you a founder member of my, my breeding thing because I think your perspective from assistance dogs and, and the way you, You'd yeah. be a fantastic mentor to encourage people to do it right and do it properly because yeah. we need people that have, you know, have been there and done it and have Just seen the experience. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And if yeah. we share it, then you never know, we might make it so that there's less, less dogs ended up bred by people who don't know what they're doing because that's the yeah. problem is people are and breeding. making it the norm again to go and get a dog at a normal household situation yeah. with the family around and, and the litter in the living room in, in, in the puppy room that, that's normal again that was normal it was ago. yeah it was. Of normal. and now people pick up dogs in the car park out of the boot yeah uh, and you think that's normal oh it's delivered like milk on the doorstep you know yeah yeah, we, we we I think in the latest issue is it that issue or was it the one before we had deliver poo where it yeah. was like deliveroo because during the lockdown the government let people deliver dogs. Yeah. So people were just getting them crazy, born. crazy, madness. Oh, it's the, this one's the one about Russia because the the um the yeah, there were the because there were all the dogs had been bought in Britain, um the celebrities who wanted a puppy ended up buying um a dog from Russia and it lasted six days and died. And um, yeah, we, well, there's a big push at the moment to stop the bulk import of puppy yeah. farm dogs because it's not necessarily there's enough dogs to go around in England. Why would you need to? No. And I think that's the thing is we really want to, you need to be able to control the welfare. So yeah. importing dogs. Um, because we've maybe have tightened things up so that there's less people breeding in that way, then you add a huge journey on top of it. It's just oh. I've I've never been in agreement from all these rescues that spend ten days travelling through every continent, delivering dogs all over the place, and they come from Romania or Spain or wherever. Help the problem where it is. Donate to their funds and let them stay. Let them collect street dogs and spay them, just like the feral cats, and put them back out there. 
stop letting that, encouraging the puppy, uh, the puppy litter to happen. Stop it, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, stop, stop, stop it where the problem is. Instead of letting them have litters, and then and then having more dogs to spread out, you know these organisations. But there's so many organisations importing rescue dogs from other countries, just going into England. Well, yeah. what's happened to the RSPCA? You know, your own shelters are full of dogs. Why aren't people in England getting a free neutering or spay contract? Get a dog from a shelter in England, we'll spay it for you for nothing. Yeah. You know, make it worth the while to. To, to rehome a dog out of a current pound. Why are dogs in the pound in the winter, in the cold winter in, in England? And you're going to bring a greyhound from Spain or whatever, you know, when there's perfectly good greyhounds in the system in England as well. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, by all means, help Spain, help to help yeah. that rescue, but give them good kenneling, support their housing for what they have got, and spay, spay and neuter on time. I think people fall in love with one story, and then, then it. But people fall in love with a photograph as well, and exactly. they don't realise that you know there's a dog that maybe has never lived in a society where there was rules, and that oh, and so maybe, many, so many bring such difficult problems with yeah. them, fighters. Um, anxiousness, what real aggression? Aggression. They're not. You can't pluck them from that environment and then set them with mm. a standard family with two young kids and hope that everything's going to go okay. Mm. Um, that's, that's the problem. We um, our brains turn to mush as yeah. soon as we see a puppy or a yeah. sad dog, and then we, we yeah, we're. I think that's the, the the thing is we really need things in place that. Make it easy for people to get it right, um, and yeah. less, less, less easy at the moment for for people just to, um, well, just to indulge and get get things that are really not going to work out because it damages families when they. The old fail. way that we used to do with the with the with the RSPCA, somebody came and they fell in love with uh, a basset, uh, uh, and it looked cute or a little puppy. We first had to have a home check. It didn't purchase that same day. So you didn't get impulse buys because we had to go and do a home check and have a chat with them anyway. So if only if they were really tied to getting that dog, we'd arrange the home check, we'd arrange to be there, and then we got the puppy afterwards. But for people who couldn't be bothered with that, went out to a side door and got a puppy in a different way. So if you brought back the system and said, well, for every dog that you rescue from whatever rescue organization, you have to have somebody officially home check you. Mm. Half of them are cancelled just for that. Yeah, we're, we don't like rules, do we, us Brits? No, exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> Even when they're good for us. No. Anyway, I'm going to have to let you go because yes. uh, I'm Thank aware you that we have definitely broken the record i think yeah yeah but we've got so much to talk about and uh, and thank you for for not cutting me off of being um a member of the press because i am ashamed of those people that that did that that is just well i know that and we've spoken many times so the church level was already there of course and my favorite my favorite reporter <laughs> Well, I, 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 if I if I could, I'd go and I'd, I'd go and take take it up with each one of them and tell them, 
you know, they should be ashamed. You never know, some of them may watch this and then maybe they will feel bad. You never know. You never know. Yeah, because they'll be ruining somebody else's life the next day. Of course. Yeah, I don't know. That's the thing. Well, you and I, we, we rest knowing that we, we haven't hurt people. And I think that's... Never. Exactly. That's, exactly. The, that's the thing. We and if you need any new cover babies, you know where to find one, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I I'm I'm sold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send us pictures. Send us pictures. <laughs> oh, it's so anyway, lovely to talk to you. And we'll have speak again soon. Stay safe, please. Uh, we need you, you to. Okay. You All the best. All right. and Take care. From me. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Again. <laughs> oh, I must.